0: This podcast is dedicated to all of those people around the world who have lost their lives to the coronavirus pandemic, to George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and Rayshard Brooks, and to all of the people who have lost their lives to gun violence over the years. I'm ready to solve these problems. I'm running for President of the United States. These were the words that kickstarted the presidential campaign of Democratic California Congressman Eric Swalwell. Swalwell made this announcement on Stephen Colbert's late night show on April 8th, 2019 with a pledge to put gun reform as the top priority for his campaign. Swalwell explained his urgency on the gun violence crisis by explaining that, quote unquote, too many kids are dying and no one in Washington is doing enough about it, end quote. The day after Swalwell announced his bid for the presidency, He went to a town hall nearby Parkland, Florida, as reported by Lois Beckett in her article in The Guardian, Hope was born in Parkland. Eric Swalwell joins 2020 race with focus on gun control. Parkland, of course, was the city that, in early 2018, made national news after it was the site of yet another horrific school shooting. As Beckett explained, Swalwell told the crowd that had gathered in the town hall that, Quote, unquote, hope died in Parkland over a year ago, but in a uniquely American way, through the strength and courage of our children, hope was born here too. End quote. Many Americans have seemingly lost hope in a brighter future for the United States, given the disastrous circumstances that have enveloped the country. However, Swalwell's proposed mandatory buyback program of all assault weapons may be able to shed light on the path to a more prosperous future. However, in order to understand the effects on the future that this mandatory buyback program could have, we must first explore its history. Only then can one truly understand the tremendously beneficial impact a mandatory buyback program can have on American society. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. rhetoric on gun violence certainly provided a very encouraging message in a time when it seems like so little has been done recently to combat the incredibly important issue of gun violence in the United States. Swalwell, however, did not only have meaningful words to share about the threat of gun violence, but also solutions that he believed, and rightfully so, could significantly cut down on the amount of mass shootings in the United States. Swalwell's arguably most dramatic and potentially effective proposed policy was to institute a national ban and mandatory buyback program of all of the assault weapons in the United States. In a CNN town hall on June 2, 2019, Swalwell explained his gun reform pop program, saying, quote-unquote, "...keep your pistols, keep your rifles, keep your shotguns, but we can ban and buy back the most dangerous weapons." and there's a new gun safety majority in America, and it's time that we lean in and negotiate up." Swalwell's buyback program actually makes much more sense than simply banning assault weapons. Although banning assault weapons would certainly have a positive impact, there would still be people that owned assault weapons before the ban was put in place. By buying back these weapons of war, the United States could ensure that these dangerous guns are no longer accessible to law-abiding American citizens. This would inevitably prevent more mass shootings from taking place, saving the lives of countless Americans. Despite the fact that Swalwell's buyback program seemed like one of the best solutions to the gun epidemic facing the United States, his policy was not initially supported by any of the other 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. Swalwell wrote a USA Today opinion piece on May 3rd, 2018, about why buying assault weapons back makes sense, as can be found in the USA Today article, Flashback, Ban Assault Weapons, Buy Them Back, Go After Resisters, Eric Swalwell. In this article, Swalwell wrote about the unique and dangerous abilities that assault weapons possess, saying, quote-unquote, Trauma surgeons and coroners will tell you the high-velocity bullet fired from a military-style semi-automatic assault weapon moves almost three times as fast as a 9mm handgun bullet, delivering far more energy." End quote. Already in this article, Swal was setting the stage for his argument of why assault weapons do not belong in the United States and how they are rarely a tool of self-defense. He went on to say how, quote-unquote, an assault weapon, then, is a handheld weapon of war capable of spraying a crowd with more lethal fire in seconds, end quote. When one actually takes a moment to think about this description of, of these weapons, there does not seem to be much of a purpose for these assault weapons that Swalwa was describing other than to kill people. Oftentimes, They have been used to kill as many people as possible, such as in mass shootings. These heinous actions occur far too much in our country. Should we work to eliminate assault weapons from our communities, we would likely see a decrease in the rising death toll that has risen much too high due to gun violence. Swalwell explained his solution to this growing gun violence epidemic in his op-ed, saying that, quote-unquote, reinstating the federal assault weapons ban that was in effect from 1994 to 2004 would prohibit manufacturing sales, but it would not affect weapons already possessed. This would leave millions of assault weapons in our communities for decades to come. Instead, we should ban possession of military-style semi-automatic assault weapons. We should buy back such weapons from all who choose to abide by the law, and we should criminally prosecute any who choose to defy it by keeping their weapons. This plan has been widely criticized in many of the previous months, but it really seems to provide some of the most comprehensive proposed gun control plans since the 1994 ban on assault weapons that Swalwell mentioned. Swalwell's focus in the op-ed really centers around protecting those innocent Americans who are at risk of being gunned down by others with high-powered assault weapons. At one point in the article, Swalwell says, quote unquote, The Parkland teens have taught us there is no right more important than every student's right to come home after class. The right to live is supreme over any other, end quote. Despite many Americans' love of the Second Amendment and their defense of the privileges that it grants them, what Swalwell is trying to bring attention to is the fact that we as a country should not value our outdated ideals over the lives of our children. Swalwell even sheds light in this op-ed on the fact that the buyback program that he ran for president on has already been tested in Australia, writing, quote-unquote, Australia got it right. After a man used military style weapons to kill 35 people in April 1996, that nation adopted strict new measures and brought back 643,726 newly illegal rifles and shotguns at market value. End quote. That was in 1996. As explained in Sean Rossman's USA Today article, titled, Australia Changed Its Gun Laws After a 1996 Mass Shooting, Australia has experienced only one mass shooting in which five or more people have been killed since then, using the information referenced in the University of Sydney's research. It has been almost 25 years since 1996. In just the 18 years prior to this systematic gun plan being enacted in Australia, as Rossman cites... There were 13 fatal mass shootings in the country. Clearly, the Australian plan worked, as one can quickly figure out from observing these statistics. Unfortunately, the United States government has never taken that strong of a stance after a mass shooting, and this unfortunate trend continues to this day. Strong rhetoric on the issue of gun violence, like that proposed by Swalwell, is especially important now, at a time when President Trump's stance on gun policy can change by the day. For example, on February 28th, 2018, Trump supported a plan to confiscate guns from potentially dangerous people, even if it meant violating due process rights, as recounted in Brett Samuel's Hill article, Trump, take the guns first, go through due process second. Trump was responding to a point made by Mike Pence, his own vice president, As documented in CNBC's video, President Trump says take guns early without due process, CNBC. Pence was proposing a plan, quote unquote, to literally give families and give local law enforcement additional tools if an individual is reported to be a potential danger to themself or others. Allow due process so that no one's rights are trampled. But, but, the ability to go to court, obtain an order, and then collect not only the firearms, but all, any, any weapons in the possession of, end quote. And this was where Trump interjected his thoughts. Quote, unquote, Or Mike, take the firearms first, and then go to court. Because that's another system. Because a lot of times, by the time you go to court, it takes so long to go to court to get the due process Procedures, I like taking the guns early. End quote. This was certainly an unusual stance for a Republican president to take, to say the least. According to Stephen Bennon's MSNBC article, Trump contradicts Pence once again, this time on guns. Pence, likely confused, kept talking, effectively pretending he hadn't heard what the president had said. End quote. Trump, however, stood firm on his strong gun control policy throughout the day, even getting into a contentious exchange with Republican Senator Pat Toomey, as documented in Tulu Alranipa, Anna Edgerton, and Greg Storr's Time article titled President Trump's Take the Guns First Remark Sparks Due Process Debate. Trump pointed out the fact that, quote-unquote, it doesn't make sense that I have to wait until I'm 21 to get a handgun, but I can get this weapon at 18. I don't know. So I was just curious as to what you did in your bill. End quote. While Trump was saying this last sentence, he gestured to Toomey, who shook his head and responded that, quote, unquote, We didn't address it, Mr. President. End quote. Toomey tried to provide a seemingly more substantive answer, but Trump quickly cut him off and said, you know why, because you're afraid of the n r a right End quote. Trump was of course, referring to the gun lobbying group known as the National Rifle Association or the n r a However, if anyone was afraid of them, it was probably him. Just one day after Trump made these strong remarks on gun control as indicated in German Lopez's Vic article trump met with the nra and now we're back to not knowing what he wants on guns trump met with the nra lobbyist chris cox who tweeted that trump and pence quote unquote support the second amendment support strong due process and don't want gun control end quote trump confirmed the meeting and added that it was a great success with a tweet of his own what this series of events seems to show us is that for some reason the Trump administration does not have a clear position on gun control that is set in stone. It seems to fluctuate in in terms of what Trump thinks will be popular to his voters and to the GOP and of course to the NRA. Couple that with all of the mass shootings that have routinely been taking place and we have a country that has done little as of late or even nothing. To act on this gun violence epidemic. This is what makes Swalwell's buyback plan so appealing. It was one of the strongest gun control plans proposed at a time when our own government does not have a clear gun control plan, but desperately needs one. Luckily, more presidential candidates have started to recognize the importance of Swalwell's buyback program. More recently... The buyback program that Swalwell campaigned on has gained more popularity. In his Washington Post opinion piece, thanks Beto, we need to debate an assault weapon buyback. Columnist Max Boot explains how, quote unquote, a mandatory gun buyback clearly does make sense. That's exactly what Australia and New Zealand did after horrific mass shootings in their countries. In just six weeks. Gun owners in New Zealand turned in 15,000 newly banned guns. In Australia, about 650,000 guns were turned in as a part of a mandatory buyback in 1996-1997. The result was a 42% decline in the rate of firearms homicides and a 57% decline in firearms suicides. End quote goes on to argue in his article how millions of assault weapons have been sold in the United States since the law banning the sale of assault weapons expired in 2004. So therefore, an assault weapons ban, like the one supported by many of the presidential candidates, would not be very effective in getting dangerous assault weapons out of the hands of individuals who already bought them legally. Some of the other Democratic presidential candidates, many of whom have dropped out as of this point in the race, have recognized the importance of a mandatory buyback of assault weapons. However, Swalwell was the first to make this policy a cornerstone of his presidential campaign. Swalwell acknowledged in his CNN town hall that, quote-unquote, I'm the only candidate calling for a ban and buyback of every assault weapon, end quote. Swalwell went on to explain that, quote unquote, I'm proposing something that Australia did in the 90s, and they haven't had a serious shooting since, End quote. He had a point. The fact that the United States was so far behind in regards to gun reform in comparison to other developed countries like Australia was a bit concerning. Swalwell therefore needed to make sure that if the United States did act on his proposal, it needed to be as effective as possible. Swalwell elaborated on his proposal, solidifying his belief that those who did not comply with his assault weapons ban and buyback program would be criminally prosecuted under his presidency. Swalwell's campaign gained support from many gun control activists, such as Cameron Kasky, a survivor of the horrific Parkland shooting. As explained in Domenico Montanaro's NPR article titled, California Rep. Eric Swalwell is Running for President Too with a Focus on Guns. Montanaro also indicated how Swalwell has taken on many proponents of the gun industry, proudly claiming that he was, quote-unquote, living in the NRA's head, end quote, after appearing on the cover of an NRA magazine. When one Twitter user claimed that Swalwell, quote unquote, wants a war, end quote, over gun rights, Swalwell tweeted back that, quote-unquote, and it would be a short war, my friend. The government has nukes, too many of them, they're legit i'm sure if we talked we could find common ground to protect our families and communities end quote clearly swallow was successfully able to frame himself as someone who would not back down from fighting for his gun control plan to have a presidential candidate especially one who came from conservative parents and a family of police officers to have such a powerful and progressive plan on gun reform was truly remarkable And although it was his main issue, Swalwell was not only a strong candidate on the issue of gun reform. In his CNN town hall, Swalwell called President Donald Trump's zero-tolerance policy of separating immigrant children from their parents a, quote-unquote, humanitarian crisis, end quote, and went on to say that he would invest in Mexico and the countries of South America so that people from these countries no longer had to flee their own countries and come to the United States. Swalwell also pledged in his town hall to, quote-unquote, stand up to Vladimir Putin. I will put back in place sanctions until the behavior changes. I will go on a global affirmation tour. So I'm going to take the oath and catch a plane. I'm going to go around the world to show our allies we're still with them, end quote. Swalwell also promised to assemble a, quote-unquote, cybersecurity national guard. End quote. to defend the United States from future cyber attacks like the ones that the Russian government spearheaded during the 2016 presidential election. Swalil even pledged during this same town hall that when he becomes president, that there will be, quote unquote, no more private prisons, end quote. Montanaro also wrote about how Swalwell frequently provided his opinion on the accusations of collusion that were leveled against the Trump campaign during the Mueller probe into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Despite the fact that Swalwell's progressive policies could have made him better suited than some of his fellow candidates to take swings at the more moderate positions of some of his competitors, Swalwell did not find very much pleasure in going after his political rivals. Swawell told audience members at an Iowa Democratic Party forum in June of 2019, according to Joseph Sebajalos Roig, that he and his fellow candidates, quote, unquote, are all a part of being the Avengers. The Republicans in 2016, that was the Hunger Games. We're all in this, with your help and support to save this country that we love so much, end quote. This was not the only time that Swalwell used this comparison, as he would go on to use this reference at least two more times in his presidential campaign. Swalwell seemed to believe that all of the Democratic presidential candidates were in this race to benefit the United States, and this seems to have been why he was more reluctant to attack his fellow presidential candidates. That being said, when Swalwell did qualify for the June 27th presidential debate, He did not hold back his criticism for two particular frontrunners. Swalwell remarked during this debate that, quote-unquote, I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to California Democratic Convention and said, It's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then-Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. End quote. The crowd that had gathered for this debate suddenly went wild as Swalwell's acknowledgement of Biden's hypocritical nature regarding the passing the torch to a new generation of Americans was brought into the light. Biden stood at his podium, smiling uncomfortably, seemingly taken aback by this attack. Swallow continued with, Quote, if we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, pass the torch. End quote. Byron responded to Swalwell's attack quickly, saying, quote, unquote, I'm still holding on to that torch. End quote. Swalwell's attack. Soon roped many other Democratic presidential candidates into the conversation about age and politics, quote, unquote, as the youngest guy on this stage, I feel like I probably ought to contribute, end quote, were the words that presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg managed to get out before being drowned out by various other candidates. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders turned towards Swalwell and told him, quote, unquote, the issue is not generational. The issue is who has the guts to take on Wall Street to take on the fossil fuel industry, to take on the big money interests who have unbelievable influence over the economic and political life of this country, end quote. The Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson went on to say that, quote unquote, the fact that somebody has a younger body doesn't mean you don't have old ideas, end quote. It could be argued that, considering the amount of backlash that Swalwell got for this remark about passing the torch that his attack on Biden backfired. However, that did not stop him from going on to sell Pass the Torch t-shirts. Swallow was also not alone in his belief that it was time for, to pass the torch and advocate for a young politician to take power over the United States. His fellow pre- Democratic presidential candidate, Michael Bennett, told a reporter shortly after the June 27th debate that in regards to passing the torch, quote unquote, I think it's time. I mean, I'd answer Bernie's question that he'd asked at the very end by saying, look, yeah, it's true, 40 years of economic immobility in this country, and we haven't figured out how to address it. I think it's time for a new generation of leadership in this country. I agree with that. End quote. Bennett seemed to remember Swalwell's pass the Torch" pledge, or at least the general idea of it, throughout the rest of his presidential campaign. On February 10th, 2020, a time long after Swalwell has dropped out of the 2020 presidential race, but when Bennett was still in it. Bennett released a campaign video on his Instagram page. In this video, Bennett specifically targeted his presidential competitors of Sanders and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, who both happen to be older than 70 years old. Bennett, on the other hand, is in his 50s. At the end of Bennett's video, he explained that, quote-unquote, I'm experienced enough to know how to get the job done, and I'm the right generation to do it. End quote. The ages for Sanders and Warren, as of February 21st, 2020, can be found in Andy Kiers' Business Insider article, Are Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden too old to run for president? Data suggests the answer is no. The age of Bennett can be found in Business Insider's article, Michael Bennett ran for president in 2020. Here's everything we know about the candidate and his platform. It certainly was reasonable for Swalwell to advocate for a new generation of leaders to take over, especially since President Donald Trump has relied on so many old and outdated ideas. Swalwell's criticism of Biden was certainly legitimate, whereas some of the attacks that the candidates would level up Biden in the next round of debates felt somewhat far-fetched, in my opinion. Swalwell's criticism of Biden was certainly more justified when considering some of the statements that he made to reiterate his point about passing the torch. According to Tess Bond's Hill article titled, Swalwell Defends Swipe at Biden's Age, It's About a Mindset, he explained when asked if he thought Biden was too old to become president that, quote unquote, it's not about age, it's about a mindset and us not being able to go past leadership to address these really, really pressing issues now. On that same debate night, Buttigieg, who is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, was confronted about a shooting that recently occurred in South Bend. As it is explained in Damn America and Emanuela Grinberg's CNN article, South Bend Police Officer Who Fatally Shot Black Man Resigns, South Bend Police Sergeant Ryan O'Neill shot and killed an African American man named Eric Jack Logan for being suspected of breaking into cars. The killing of Logan seems to have been racially charged, and O'Neill resigned shortly after the backlash erupted over yet another police shooting of a person of color. Logan's mother, Shirley Newbill, took out her completely justified anger on Buttigieg, telling him that she had lived in South Bend for her entire life, and officials had have never done a quote-unquote thing about me or my son or none of these people put here, Newbill went on to tell Buttigieg that, quote unquote, I'm tired of hearing your lies, end quote. Buttigieg was asked during the June 27th debate about the death of Logan, and in his response, he ended on an optimistic note saying, quote unquote, I am determined to bring about a day when a white person driving a vehicle and a black person driving a vehicle, when they see a police officer approaching, feels the exact same way. A feeling not of fear, but of safety. I am determined to bring up that day about. End quote. Despite his quite strong response to this incident, another presidential candidate, the former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, who dropped out of the presidential primary shortly thereafter, took a shot at Buttigieg's experience in South Bend. Hickenlooper asked Buttigieg on the debate stage, quote unquote, why has it taken so long? We had a shooting when I first became mayor, ten years before Ferguson, and the community came together. We created an office of the Independent Moderate Civilian Oversight Commission. We diversified the police force in two years. We actually did de-escalation training. I think the real question that America should be asking is why, five years after Ferguson, every city doesn't have this level of police accountability. When Buttigieg tried to respond to Hickenlooper's remarks, Swalwell jumped into the mix. Quote, unquote, if the camera wasn't on and that was the policy, you should fire the chief. End quote, Swalwell told Buttigieg. The camera that Swalwell was referring to was O'Neill's body camera? Boudrege gave what some political commentators have gone on to call a deaf stare at Swalwell. Boudrege paused and responded with, quote unquote, "So under Indiana law, this will be investigated and there will be accountability for the officer." End quote. Quote unquote, You're the mayor and you should fire the chief if that's the policy and someone died. End quote. Was what Swalwell's response was. Luckily for Buttigieg, Williamson jumped into the conversation and moved on to reparations. As recounted in the Hill's article, Swalwell presses Buttigieg on police involved South Bend shooting, you're the mayor, you should fire the chief. Buttigieg's so called death stare gained momentum on Twitter, with NBC reporter Frank Thorpe tweeting, quote unquote, there were some daggers coming from at Pete Buttigieg's eyes towards at Rep Swalwell just now when Swalwell told Buttigieg he should fire his police chief, hashtag DemDebate, end quote. Clearly, despite the traction that Buttigieg had gained early on in his presidential bid, this moment on June 27th clearly did not help his chances of becoming president. Despite the shots that Swalwell took at Biden and Buttigieg in this debate. He never really broke from his original message of the Democratic candidates working together like they were the Avengers. Swallow may not have been the star of the June 27th debate, but after watching it, I remember feeling like Swalwell was one of the candidates who really shined. His focus on ending the gun violence epidemic made Swalwell an exciting candidate in my mind. That's why it came as a bit of a surprise when, on July 8th, 2019, Swalwell dropped out of the presidential race. In his remarks that Swalwell made to the press after announcing that he was ending his presidential campaign, he said that one of his biggest takeaways from running for president was that quote unquote, people really do trust you. When they get those opportunities face to face, they tell you things that they probably only tell their spouses. And they're really counting and They still believe that this is a country of fairness and order and laws, and they're counting on it being that way. And so, I don't want to let folks like that down. That's why I get so frustrated with the president. As you see, you know, you stand in the living rooms of, you know, hardworking Americans. You see how hard they've worked to buy their home. They're not asking, you know, to live a lavish life and be a member of Mar-a-Lago, but they just want to know... That their prescription drugs aren't going to bankrupt them. And so they just want, they want you to be straight. They want honesty in their politicians. And they want equal opportunity in their own lives. End quote. In response to Swalwell's departure and inspiring message, several of the other presidential candidates voiced their support for Swalwell. Presidential candidate Kamala Harris tweeted, quote unquote, At Eric Swalwell, you are a great fighter for the people of California. We are a stronger nation because of your work to protect our children and our communities from gun violence, End quote. Bennett took to Twitter as well, saying, quote unquote, At Eric Swalwell, we're all grateful for your work highlighting the critical need for gun safety reform on the national stage. Progress on this pivotal issue has been blocked for far too long, and I hope that you will continue your leadership. End quote. And that was it. Swallow was officially the first 2020 Democratic presidential candidate that made the debate stage to drop out. Technically, Swallow was the second Democratic presidential candidate to end his campaign since former West Virginia State Senator Richard Ohedda dropped out of his brief presidential run in january of 2019 as explained in damn america's cnn article richard o'heda and short-lived 2020 campaign since swallow announced the end of his campaign 26 other democratic candidates have also dropped out mike gravell john hickenlooper jay Inslee, seth moulton kirsten gillenbrand bill de blasio tim ryan beto o'rourke wayne Messam. Joe Sestak, Steve Bullock, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, Marianne Williamson, Cory Booker, John Delaney, Andrew Yang, Michael Bennett, Deval Patrick, Tom Steyer, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, and Bernie Sanders. While all of these candidates certainly had their supporters, not all of them were able to make much of an impact during this presidential primary. Swalwell, however, transformed the way that the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates deal with gun violence and has reshaped the gun safety narrative. How could Swalwell, a presidential candidate in a crowded field of presidential candidates who had a relatively short-lived campaign, change the narrative in a presidential election, one may ask? The answer is with Swalwell's policy to buy back assault weapons. During the first Democratic presidential debate on June 27th, Swalwell told the audience that "quote unquote, I'm the only candidate on the stage calling for a ban and buyback of every single assault weapon in America. I've seen the plans of the other candidates. They would all leave 15 million assault weapons in our communities. They wouldn't do a single thing to save a single life in Parkland. I'll approach this issue as a prosecutor. I'll approach it as the only person on this stage who's voted to pass background checks, but also as a parent, end quote. Swalwell continues speaking about this issue, expressing his sentiment that we all must love children more than guns. The gun control topic in this debate was then directed towards Sanders, who does, in fact, have a relatively conservative history with gun control. According to German Lopez's Vox article, Bernie Sanders' record on gun control explained, Sanders voted against the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which set up background checks on the federal level. In 2003 and 2005, Sanders voted for a bill that protected gun companies from lawsuits, a bill that Sanders' main opponent when he ran for president in 2016, Hillary Clinton, has voted against and cited as a difference between her and Sanders in their histories with gun control. Lopez recognizes in his article that during the 2016 presidential election, Sanders was weakened by his comparatively weak stance on gun control and has taken a more progressive stance on the topic in this 2020 election. Nevertheless, that did not stop Swalwell from criticizing Sanders on his current gun control plan. When Sanders was asked about his previous history on the issue of gun control, Swalwell interrupted his response to tell him that, quote unquote, your plan leaves them on the streets. You leave 15 million on the streets, end quote, referring to the assault weapons that Sanders had not committed himself to buying back. Sanders replied with, quote unquote, we ban the sale and distribution and that's what I've believed for many years, end quote. Swalwell returned to one of the cornerstones of his gun control plan, asking Sanders, quote unquote, will you buy him back, end quote. Sanders staggered in his response, telling Swalwell, quote unquote, if the people want to buy, buy, it. if the government wants to do that, if the people want to do that, yes, end quote. Swalwell shot back with, quote unquote, if you're going to be the government will you buy them back, end quote. Sanders, now forced into a political corner, basically announced his support for Swalwell's buyback program, answering Swalwell's question with, quote, unquote, yes, yeah, end quote. Whether Sanders would actually stay true to his word and buy the assault weapons back if he were to be elected president of the United States is not yet known. However, at least he did commit to Swalwell's plan on a public debate, watched by many. Considering Sanders' more conservative history with gun control, hearing him say that he would buy back all of the assault weapons in the United States is certainly reassuring for many gun control advocates. However, Sanders is not the only candidate that ran for president that announced their support for Swalwell's plan. Right after Sanders told Swalwell that he would buy back the assault weapons, MSNBC host Rachel Maddow provided Harris with some time to address the issue of gun violence and Harris started her remarks off with, quote, unquote, I think your idea is a great one, Congressman Swalwell, and I will say that there are a lot of great ideas. The problem is Congress has not had the courage to act, which is why when elected President of the United States, I will give the United States Congress 100 days to pull their act together, bring me all these good ideas together, and put a bill on my desk for signature. And if they do not, I will take executive action and put in place the most comprehensive background check policy we've had. I will require the ATF to take the licenses of gun dealers who violate the law, and I will ban by executive order the importation of assault weapons. End quote. This was certainly some very strong rhetoric from Harris regarding gun control, while she was rather coy about whether or not she would buy back all of the assault weapons in the United States, saying only that it was a great idea and hinting that if she was elected president, it might be included in her gun control plan, it was quite energizing for gun control advocates to hear Harris, who, as recounted in Peter Funt's USA Today article titled, Kamala Harris owns a handgun that's disqualifying for a 2020 Democrat in my book, owns a handgun herself. And Harris's support for Swalwell's buyback program has only grown over time. More recently, she has made that support more direct saying, according to Sahil Kapoor's Bloomberg article, Kamala Harris supports mandatory buyback of assault weapons, that the United States must enact a mandatory buyback of all assault weapons. When asked about her support for this policy, Harris remarked that, quote-unquote, we have to work out the details. There are a lot of details, but I do, end quote, as is explained in Kapoor's article. This is definitely a more progressive stance that Harris has taken regarding gun control than her stance that she held during the June 27th Democratic debate. Rather than merely flirting with the idea of a mandatory buyback program, Harris has now made it crystal clear that she supports this program. Although Sanders did not spend much time elaborating on his commitment to a mandatory buyback program, Sahil Kapoor revealed in his Bloomberg article titled, 2020 Democrats Warm to Mandatory Buybacks of Assault Weapons, that Sanders supports a voluntary buyback program. This means that, under Sanders' plan, if gun owners want to sell their assault weapons back to the government, they can, but they are under no legal mandate to do so. Harris provided a more progressive voice than Sanders on this particular issue. However, both of their plans are definitely steps in the right direction. Harris received some conservative backlash for this decision on Twitter and gained attention for it from Breitbart, the conservative-leaning news outlet which Stephen Bannon, the former Trump campaign CEO, ran as executive chairman, as revealed by... Joshua Green in his book Devil's Bargain, after Breitbart News' founder Andrew Breitbart died on March 1st, 2012. However, Harris's commitment to Swalwell's buyback program never really became one of the cornerstones of her gun control plan, as it was for Swalwell, and Sanders has really not talked up his reluctant support for buying back assault weapons since the June 27th presidential debate. Besides, there are a number of Democratic presidential candidates who have actually made buying back every assault weapon in the United States more of a priority than Harrison Sanders. One such Democratic presidential candidate who supports a form of an assault weapons buyback plan and is definitely more committed to it than Sanders is, is Bullock, the candidate who replaced Swalwell on the debate stage after he dropped out of the race. Bullock's focus on gun control has been a topic that has defined his political life even before he ran for president. Bullock tweeted out on August fifth, two 2019, a video from more than a year before when he was just known as the governor of Montana and not a presidential contender. According to WhiteHouse.gov's transcript, remarks by President Trump at 2018 White House Business Session with Governors, this video was from February 26, 2018. In this video, Bullock is in the White House and had the opportunity to ask Trump a question. Out of all the questions that he could have asked Trump, Bullock framed his question around gun violence. Bullock started off his remarks by thanking Trump for having him, but quickly jumped into his question, telling Trump that, quote-unquote, I approach this certainly as a governor. I approach it as a gun owner. That an 11-year-old son got his first deer this past fall, end quote. Trump interjected to compliment Bullock's son, saying, quote unquote, he's a good boy, end quote. Bullock was not phased and continued his remarks. Quote unquote, I approach it as a victim. I had a nephew shot and killed an eleven year old on a playground. I approach it as a parent with three young kids saying, just like every other parent or grandparent, we need to do everything we can to keep our kids safe. End quote. This was certainly strategic for Bullock to bring up the parent and grandparent aspect of needing gun control. As it is explained in former Trump aide Cliff Sims' book, Team of Vipers, during, quote unquote, a scramble through the ground floor of the residence on the way to board Marine One on the South Lawn, the entire entourage screeched to a halt when the president spied one of his grandchildren. He rushed over, swept him up in his arms, and kissed him on the forehead just like any doting grandfather would before rushing off to the chopper. End quote. Even though Trump does not seem to have a very consistent view on gun control, he does seem to somewhat understand the pain of losing a loved one to gun violence. Bullock seemed to understand that and probably started his remarks off with that analogy in order to get Trump's attention. Bullock continued his remarks, telling Trump that there needs to be universal background checks and red flag laws, Bullock also told Trump, quote unquote, I encourage you as you go on the path of looking at what we can do in schools. I used to be attorney general and ran the law enforcement academy too and would graduate these police officers each and every year. I want to make sure if somebody is armed in a school that they have that training, that we know that he or she, it's much more as I think you recognize than just carrying concealed, that they have that training that I, as a parent, can say that this person under pressure will know what to do with a firearm before we start introducing into our schools, end quote. Bullock seemed to be referencing an issue that Trump told Governor Inslee about, as recounted in WhiteHouse.gov's transcript remarks by President Trump at 2018 White House business session with governors, that he would be considering giving a group of gun-adept teachers access to firearms in schools. Trump nodded at Bullock while he was giving his remarks, seemingly paying very close attention to what he had to say. Bullock finished up his speech to Trump by saying that, quote-unquote, It's almost, on the one hand, to the point that we're getting desensitized, but on the other hand, here is a moment where everybody is talking, where we can hopefully start saying what could actually meaningfully impact this, not just for today, but for the future. So, thank you so much, and I hope that those areas, you'll certainly take both the billy pulpit and the leadership in Congress, end quote. Unfortunately, Trump did not seem to take away what the main point of Bullock's remarks about gun control were. Trump began his response to Bullock's speech by saying, quote-unquote, Thank you very much. Great points. It was great being with you last night. You mentioned two words, under pressure. And a lot of people never really know what that means because, you know, they train a whole life. Look at Peterson. Look at what he did in Broward, where he thought he was probably a brave guy. But he wasn't a brave guy, under pressure. He choked. And other people choked. I mean, a lot of people choked in that case. End quote. Trump was referencing Scott Peterson, who, as Ideal Hassan exhibits in his New York Times article, Scott is released on Bond, here's how he's explained his actions during the Parkland shooting, was the only police officer on the campus at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland when there was a horrific school shooting. Peterson, as is explained by Hassan, did nothing to stop the shooting and instead remained outside the school while students were being murdered inside. Peterson was accused of being, quote-unquote, the coward of Broward, end quote, and was charged with seven counts of felony neglect of a child. So Peterson ended up being punished for his response to the Parkland shooting. Nevertheless, Trump took the time he had been given by Bullock to address the gun violence epidemic to attack Peterson. Trump took a very minor part of Bullock's speech, the phrase, under pressure, and applied it to how Peterson, one of his favorite punching bags during 2018, acted during the Parkland shooting. Trump then redirected his attack on Peterson to explain that gun adept teachers should have been allowed to access guns. When Bullock tweeted out this video on August 5th, He captioned it as, quote, unquote, more than a year ago, I asked Donald Trump what he's doing to end the gun violence epidemic in our country. His answer wasn't good enough then, and his leadership isn't good enough now, end quote. This incident would basically define Bullock's gun reform policies. He would put the issue at the front of his campaign and would call out people, including the president, for not taking it as seriously as he has. Even though Bullock might not have been the strongest of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, one of the ways that he was able to distinguish himself in the gun debate is that he has advocated for a buyback of assault weapons. Bullock's firm progressive stance on gun control has persisted throughout his campaign. Through on September 6 of 2019, Bullock took an interview on MSNBC's hardball program in which MSNBC political correspondent Steve Kornacki asked him, quote unquote, what about, you know this from Montana, probably better than any of the other Democratic candidates, the importance to rural voters of guns. And in in the context of Democrats right now, obviously there's a push here for background checks, assault weapons ban, Beto O'Rourke saying to go even farther than that, end quote. Yeah. Bullock replied sternly, clearly understanding the divide that exists in the Democratic Party of how far left its gun control policy should go. Kornacki finished his question with, quote unquote, "Does that issue lose the Democrats' rural voters?" End quote. In his response, Bullock referenced the NRA, telling Kornacki that, quote unquote, "When I was growing up, the NRA was a hunting, a gun safety organization." 30 million reasons why we haven't made any progress, that's 30 million that they've put into the Trump campaign. So, at some point, even gun owners have to say, we can do more to keep our communities safe. And I don't think that loses rural voters. End quote. So obviously, gun reform was an important cornerstone in Bullock's campaign, especially since he has been so open about how he lost his own nephew to gun violence. But how does Swallow's initial buyback plan fit into Bullock's gun safety plan, one may ask? Well, C-SPAN has a link titled Governor Steve Bullock at Iowa State Fair News Conference that exhibits a video of a question and answer conference with Bullock. In this conference, Bullock explains that he does, in fact, support a voluntary buyback program like Sanders does. However, he flatly said that he does not support a mandatory buyback program. So while his gun control plan does not go as far as to have a mandatory buyback program, he is one of only a handful of the former Democratic presidential candidates who supported a buyback program of any kind. And it does feel as though Bullock has spoken about his voluntary buyback program more frequently than Harris did about her mandatory buyback program. Despite this, Bullock was also not among the most progressive Democratic presidential candidates on the issue of gun reform. However, before we get into detail about those particular candidates, it is important to bring up some of the other candidates who have supported a buyback program of some kind with varying degrees of commitment. In his article, Kapoor briefly mentions that Warren supports a voluntary buyback program. This is a proposal that has not been widely advertised by Warren and is one that I personally have not heard much about before reading this article. However, considering the amount of plans that Warren has committed herself to during her presidential run, I would not be surprised that if sometime during her campaign, she announced her support of a voluntary buyback program. Despite this, it does appear as if Warren has a similar commitment to this plan as Sanders has, which is not saying all that much. Even though Swalwell was the first 2020 Democratic presidential candidate to come out with a plan to buy back assault weapons, there is another candidate who announced his support for that plan relatively early in the presidential race, before the first presidential debate even took place. That candidate is Tim Ryan. In Ryan's CNN town hall, CNN host Poppy Harlow started off her questions for Ryan with the issue of gun reform. When she brought up that Ryan used to have an A grade from the NRA and now holds an F grade, the crowd in attendance cheered enthusiastically. Ryan remarked shortly thereafter that, quote, unquote, this is the first time I've ever gotten applauded for going from an A to an F on anything that I've done, so thank you for that, end quote. Ryan went on to provide several policies that he he would enact if he was elected president, such as banning assault weapons and mandatory background checks. Harlow then followed up on Ryan's remarks with a question directly related to Swalwell's buyback program, telling Ryan, quote-unquote, your fellow presidential candidate, fellow Democrat, Congressman Eric Swalwell, who happens to be up next in our town hall event with my colleague, Jim Sciuto, um he would like to institute what... What, a ban on what he calls military-style semi-automatic assault weapons. He wants to offer a buyback program for them and then criminally prosecute anyone who does not sell them back. So, essentially, they could face jail time if they don't sell those guns back. Do you support that? Yes or no? End quote. In his response, Ryan told Harlow, quote, unquote, I can't say why I would not support it. This was pretty major news in the world of the 2020 presidential election, considering the fact that it would not be until weeks later that Harris and Sanders would first float around the possibility that they would institute any buyback legislation. However, it was news that really did not receive all that much attention. Ryan did admit in the moment when he announced his support for Swallow's buyback program that he has not read the plan yet, so he was just basing his answer on what he was just told, but then informed Harlow that, quote unquote, I do support an assault weapons ban, I do support a background check, and if you're going to buy the weapons back, I would be supportive of doing that. So I just want to see the details of it, but I am committed to making sure that we have an absolute gun reform here in the United States. As I said, we watch these school shootings. We we have kids in the school. My wife is in the schools. This is something I want to have an impact as president of the United States on. End quote. This statement was not made when stuck in a political corner, unlike the situation that Sanders was in when he endorsed Swalwell's plan, and nor was Ryan merely hinting at the idea that he would institute a buyback plan like Harris was when she first endorsed Swalwell's plan. Ryan announced his support for buying back assault weapons with a direct tone and would not abandon his support for this plan until later in the presidential race. Ryan ultimately did tone down his strong approach to tackling the issue of gun violence in the United States. On August 15, 2019, as archived by, it, by the CNN Twitter account, Ryan, when asked a question about whether he would be open to instituting a mandatory buyback program, said, quote-unquote, I don't think we want to move down the mandatory piece of this. Look, we're having trouble getting universal background checks passed, closing the Charleston loophole passed, getting money to fund the Center for Disease Control to really study gun violence as a public health problem in the United States. So I think going that far on some of these issues is really taking the focus off the issues that they want. I support an assault weapons ban too. I think these weapons of war have no business on the streets of Dayton or El Paso or any community. And it's not just the mass shootings. It's the, it's the gun violence that happens every day in communities that wreck families and ruin communities that we've got to deal with. And so let's keep focused on the the two bills that are sitting before the United States Senate. Let's continue to apply pressure. Moms Demand Action are doing rallies all across the country on Saturday night. We have a big one here in Cleveland that we're gonna be participating in, me and Senator Sherrod Brown and others. And let's keep the focus on this and 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 right now that's where I think our attention needs to be. End quote. This was a bit disappointing to see Ryan not fully embracing Swalwell's specific buyback program. While Ryan's reasoning for why he ended up denouncing the idea of a mandatory buyback program makes sense that he wanted to focus on getting the less radical bills passed through Congress, we need more leaders to have the moral courage to stand up and proclaim their support for a mandatory buyback program unequivocally. Ryan, at least, was able to keep the conversation on gun control quite progressive, even though his stance was not quite as complete or effective as the one adopted by Swalwell during his pre- brief presidential run. However, there were some other candidates that leaned a little bit more heavily into adopting a mandatory buyback program than Ryan. As indicated in Quint Forge's Politico article, Gillenbrand suggests support for mandatory buyback of assault weapons. Former Democratic presidential candidate Kirsten Gillenbrand made it clear in August of 2019 that she was interested in instituting a mandatory buyback program. Gillenbrand's strong stance on gun control was one that was probably influenced by her campaign's focus on domestic violence. This is evident when, on March 27, 2019, Gillenbrand tweeted that, quote-unquote, 50 women are shot to death by their partners every month in America. We have to face the fact that there is a deadly connection between violence against women and guns in America. Leaders who put the NRA blood money over women's lives shouldn't be anywhere near our laws. End quote. The connection that Gillenbrand made between gun control and domestic violence was certainly an important one, and one that has gone ignored for far too long in our political conversation. Reducing gun violence and reducing domestic violence go hand in hand, so it would make sense that Gillenbrand would adopt a progressive platform to deal with both. Although most of the other Democratic presidential candidates did not support a mandatory buyback program, there were still a few that strongly vouched for it in the Democratic presidential races. Former Democratic presidential candidate Bill de Blasio also supported putting in place a mandatory buyback program if he were to be elected president. As recounted in the Politico article, Bill de Blasio views on 2020 issues, a voter guide, Politico. De Blasio, it should be noted, is also an avid supporter of Medicare for All. Cory Booker a former presidential candidate who stayed in the race until early 2020, supported putting in place a mandatory buyback program as well. In the Vox article titled, Cory Booker on Why Democrats Should Go Bolder on Gun Control by German Lopez and Catherine Kim, Booker is quoted as saying in an interview that he did with Lopez that, quote unquote, I would like to see a buyback program and a mandatory turnover. Now, what the consequences are for that, I do not think we should be going out and arresting people for having guns. I think that is language that is being used by the right and by the gun lobbies to try to scare people away from an assault rifle ban. But we need to have a firm law that bans assault weapons from our communities, that gets people ultimately to respect it. And having a buyback program, to me, is a very fair way of doing it. End quote. Booker elaborated in this interview about some of the other proposals that he had announced to deal with gun violence and why more Democrats should adopt them. Quote, unquote, for Democrats to play into the hands of the corporate gun lobby and just letting them define what the realm of possible is, it's so defeatist to me. At a time with the levels of carnage in our country, we don't need people who are defeatist in their thinking about what's possible, End quote. Booker supported putting in place a licensing requirement to buy and own a gun. Researchers have repeatedly come to the conclusion that a gun licensing requirement would be more effective at preventing gun violence than an assault weapons ban or universal background checks, the two proposals that most Democrats have safely supported as proof of their gun safety concerns for the past two decades. Booker was also quoted as saying in Lopez and Kim's article that, We know that in Connecticut, researchers found that because of gun licensing, they found a 40% drop in gun homicide and a 15% reduction in firearm suicide. That's data. That is fact. End quote. Booker seems to rightfully have grown irritated that while some Democrats adopt increasingly more progressive plans to tackle issues regarding higher education and health care, their views on gun control remain frustratingly moderate. This description is one that could probably be attached to Sanders, who, despite having plans for higher education and health care that are touted as being quite progressive, has a gun control plan that is very moderate and a gun control record that is relatively conservative. In fact, Sanders had trouble on the June 27th, 2019 Democratic presidential debate committing himself to any form of a buyback program. Booker said, according to Lopez and Kim's article, that, quote-unquote, I have little tolerance for Democrats who seem to be bold on a lot of other plans and issues, but aren't bold on the common sense things that will make my community safe and communities like mine all across this country, end quote. Booker elaborated on what some viewed as his bold position on gun control in his interview with Lopez, saying, quote unquote, leaders should not follow public opinion. They should be a part of molding it. That's what leadership is. Don't just stick your finger in the wind and then see which way the crowd is going, End quote. Booker was clearly taking a position in the Democratic presidential race that should be commended. Because while many of the presidential candidates dismissed gun violence concerns with established Democratic Party plans that politicians had been using for decades, Booker was trying to take on the gun violence epidemic in the United States with innovative solutions that might actually make a significant positive difference in the lives of so many Americans. It is refreshing to see that one of these solutions that Booker supported was the mandatory buyback program that Swalwell had fought so vehemently for while he was in the presidential race. Booker seemed to understand that true leadership required taking positions that may not always be politically beneficial. This may be why Booker even fought against other Democratic candidates who were advocating for more moderate gun control plans. According to Greg Nash's The Hill article titled, Booker Hits Buttigieg Over Gun Buyback Comment, NRA doesn't need our help. After Buttigieg made a comment about how buybacks of any guns would equate to confiscation, Booker responded over Twitter with, quote unquote, calling buyback programs confiscation is doing the NRA's work for them, at Pete Buttigieg, and they don't need our help, end quote. Booker also, according to the Bloomberg opinion piece titled, Cory Booker has bold ideas on gun safety, which was written by the Bloomberg editorial staff. Booker also supported micro-stamping semi-automatic handguns. This is a process that, quote unquote, would mark ammunition when it's fired, enabling law enforcement agencies to trace a shell casing to the gun that fired it. Current law forbids a spouse or ex-spouse under a restraining order or convicted of abuse from purchasing a firearm. Booker wants to extend this to current and former dating partners, and he wants to remove the gun industry's exceptionally broad immunity from legal actions by repealing the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act." End quote. All of these incredibly progressive and well-thought-out gun control plans that Booker put together in his 2020 presidential campaign. Coupled with the mandatory buyback program that Booker also voiced his support for, would mean that a Booker presidential administration could potentially turn the tide on the gun violence epidemic that has been devouring the United States. Unfortunately, Booker has since dropped out of the Democratic presidential race. However, the ideas that he brought to the table regarding gun violence should be analyzed, considered, and possibly implemented. Booker's commitment to dealing with the gun violence crisis is one that should be greatly commended, for in a crowded Democratic presidential field, Booker stood out because of it. His devotion to a mandatory buyback program is also very admirable. However, if there is any Democratic presidential candidate who is just as, if not more worthy of having the honor of defending Swalwell's mandatory buyback program more than any other presidential candidate, it is Beto O'Rourke. Democratic presidential debate on September 12, 2019, Democratic presidential candidate and former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke was asked about his proposed policy for a mandatory buyback of all assault weapons. When he was asked specifically about whether he was proposing to take away Americans' guns, O'Rourke responded with, quote-unquote, I am if it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield, if the high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do just that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers. When we see that being used against children? And in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15, and that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa in Midland, there weren't enough ambulance to get to them in time. End quote. Upon building momentum, O'Rourke said one of his most famous phrases on the campaign trail when he remarked, quote-unquote, We are going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. And I want to say this. I'm listening to the people of this, this country. The day after I proposed doing that, I went to a gun show in Conway, Arkansas to meet with those who are selling AR-15s and AK-47s and those who are buying those weapons. And you might be surprised, there was some common ground there. Folks who said, I would willingly give that up. Cut it to pieces. I don't need this weapon to hunt to defend myself. It is a weapon of war. So let's do the right thing, but let's bring everyone in America into the conversation. Republicans, Democrats, gun owners, and non-gun owners alike. End quote. O'Rourke's rhetoric on September 12th, 2019 was one of the many examples of how he, unlike some of his presidential rivals, never backed down from his hardline progressive stance on gun violence. O'Rourke, in many ways, passed the torch of handling the mandatory buyback program as he was certainly one of the most outspoken of the Democratic candidates in his support for this program and is arguably the most well-known example of a Democrat who defends this proposed policy. This was not always the case, however as explained in molly hensley clancy's buzzfeed news article beto o'rourke's presidential campaign suddenly has a purpose at the beginning of the 2020 democratic presidential primary o'rourke struggled to show how he was different from the many other democratic candidates running for president o'rourke fell in the polls as candidates such as elizabeth warren and pete Buttigieg gained traction with voters O'Rourke attracted many supporters in his Senate race against Senator Ted Cruz due to his willingness to take on controversial subjects. However, in the early stages of the presidential race, O'Rourke was much more cautious, and this was a stance that did not do him many favors early on. In fact, O'Rourke's campaign seemed to take a hit in the June 26, 2019 Democratic presidential debate when, according to... America's CNN article titled, Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke spar and fight that appeared deeper than just policy, presidential candidate Julian Castro attacked O'Rourke on his immigration stance. In the debate, Castro spoke on an immigration plan that he had released that focused on repealing Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. This was a law that was used by the George W. Bush administration to make anyone that entered the United States illegally subject to a criminal violation, not just a civil infraction. The Bush administration had used this law to try to slow the increase in immigration to the United States. Castro made it clear in the June 26 presidential debate that he believed that Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act needed to be repealed. Castro explained, in regards to the Trump administration's family separation policy, quote unquote, they are using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalized crossing over the border to incarcerate the parents and then separate them, end quote. Castro elaborated, according to America, how, quote unquote, some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not end quote. O'Rourke tried to respond, but Castro talked over him, saying that, quote unquote, and I want to challenge all of the candidates to do that. I just think it is a mistake, Beto, and I think if you truly want to change the system, then we have to repeal that section, end quote. When O'Rourke formulated his response to Castro's political attacks, he said that, quote unquote, Actually, as a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge in this country, quote. Castro, however, was quick to point out that he was not referring to immigrants who were seeking asylum, he was referring to undocumented immigrants as well. Castro memorably gained media attention due to this moment on the debate stage, which certainly did not help O'Rourke's chances of becoming president. Part of that may be because O'Rourke did not arguably have a standout radical position. In fact, according to Katie Glick's New York Times article, After El Paso shooting, Will Voters Revisit Beto O'Rourke? Former Texas State Senator Elliot Shapley said, quote-unquote, In the first one, he got blindsided. I don't think he really thought he'd be attacked by Castro. He did better in the second debate, but he didn't rise to a top-tier candidate. He didn't take an issue and run with it, End quote. That all changed, however, when the horrible August 3rd, 2019 shooting in El Paso, Texas, Rourke's hometown, took place. According to the Atlantic article, Why Better Rourke argues he has a new case to make to voters by Edward Isaac Dover, O'Rourke told Dover that he was in such a very dark place after the violence that took place in El Paso. O'Rourke apparently told Dover that the shooting in El Paso made him rethink the entire presidential campaign. O'Rourke even acknowledged his own previous lack of understanding in how devastating gun violence in this country can be. As recounted by Dover, O'Rourke canceled his scheduled trips to Iowa after the mass shooting in El Paso in order to travel to places that had been negatively affected by Trump's rhetoric. O'Rourke seemed to have been changed by the horrific El Paso shooting. It really did appear to be a situation that O'Rourke deeply cared about. He held Trump partially responsible for the deaths of those victims of the shooting, saying, according to Martin Pengelly's Guardian article, titled, O'Rourke, El Paso shooting makes clear the real consequence of Trump's racism, that, quote-unquote, from the outset of this campaign, even before this campaign, I talked about how dangerous President Trump's open racism is, end quote. O'Rourke referenced Trump's infamous Muslim ban that he signed early on in his presidency, going on to say that, quote-unquote, It wasn't until someone, inspired by Donald Trump, drove more than 600 miles to my hometown and killed 22 people in my community with a weapon of war, an AK-47, that he had no business owning, that no American should own unless they are on a battlefield engaged with the enemy. It wasn't until that moment that I truly understood how critical this moment is and the real consequence and cost of Donald Trump. End quote. There was ample evidence supporting the idea that the shooter in the atrocious El Paso shooting was inspired by the policies of Trump and his administration to commit these awful hate crimes. Trump made it clear that he did not take any responsibility for the El Paso shooting, and as is documented on O'Rourke's Instagram page, Trump tweeted that, quote-unquote, Beto, phony name to indicate Hispanic heritage, O'Rourke, who is embarrassed by my last visit to the great state of Texas where I trounced him and is now even more embarrassed by pulling up 1% in the Democrat primary, should respect the victims and law enforcement and be quiet, end quote. O'Rourke stood his ground and tweeted back that, quote 22 people in my hometown are dead after an act of terror inspired by your racism. El Paso will not be quiet and neither will I, end quote. O'Rourke continued to stand up for what is right and continued to hold Trump partially accountable for the deaths of the victims in El Paso shooting, tweeting on August 6, 2019, quote, unquote, you cannot leave it up to me, members of the press, you too have to call him out for being the most racist president since Andrew Johnson, end quote. O'Rourke attached a video to his tweet, which showed an interview that he had recently done with CNN host Chris Como. Please note that in this video, I've replaced all expletives with the word blank. In this video, O'Rourke said that Trump, quote unquote, is the same man who called white nationalists and Klansmen and neo-Nazis very fine people, who asked for more immigrants who look like those from Sweden and Norway, the whitest places on the country while describing immigrants from Haiti as full of AIDS or countries in Africa, blank hole nations. This is the most racist president we've had since perhaps Andrew Johnson in another age, in another century. And, And he is responsible for the hatred and the violence that we're seeing right now. You cannot leave that just to me to say that it's got to be you, end quote. This was a quite bold, albeit justified, assertion of O'Rourke to make by claiming that Trump may have been the most racist president since Andrew Johnson, who had worked hard to prevent African Americans from gaining the freedoms that they deserved. This comparison with Johnson was also quite fitting, since Johnson was one of the only other American presidents ever to be impeached. But one of the most important takeaways of this statement was that O'Rourke would not tolerate racism from anyone, including the President of the United States. In fact, in an email that O'Rourke sent to his supporters on August 6, 2019, titled, El Paso, he explained how, quote-unquote, Though we are a city that prides itself as a home of immigrants, we live in America at a moment that the president seeks to make us afraid of immigrants, to see them as animals and rapists and killers, a threat to our very lives, an invasion that must be stopped, an infestation that must be stamped out. At a rally in Florida, in May, President Trump asked how America could stop immigrants from coming into the country. Shoot them, someone yelled back. As the crowd roared their approval, the president smiled. O'Rourke's criticism of Trump was certainly justified and seemed to come from an emotional mindset, seemingly not from a desire to advance his own political interests. O'Rourke's desire to put the interests of his people before his own political interests is a desire that would play a key role in his support of a mandatory buyback program. This selflessness is also a trait that Americans across the United States have seen O'Rourke demonstrate time and time again. One of the clearest examples of O'Rourke's selflessness was on display when, shortly after the El Paso shooting... When, as is explained in Eric Bradner and Ryan Noble's CNN article, Better O'Rourke to skip Iowa trip, stay in El Paso, O'Rourke canceled a trip that he had planned to take to Iowa, choosing instead to grieve with the citizens of El Paso following the shooting, even though by doing so would mean not being able to attend certain events in Iowa that many of his presidential rivals would be attending. O'Rourke's campaign team even acknowledged how leaving the presidential campaign trail for as long as they did put the them at a disadvantage, saying in an email to supporters on August 16th, 2019, titled Back on the Trail, that, quote, unquote, while focusing on El Paso was absolutely the right thing to do, being off the campaign trail for two weeks has put the campaign at a disadvantage, end quote. However, O'Rourke made a definitive decision to focus on El Paso's recovery over his own presidential campaign, which really exemplifies O'Rourke's strong moral character. O'Rourke's selflessness also represents an important difference between himself and President Trump, who O'Rourke had been clashing with after the shooting in El Paso. One of the key critical differences between Trump and O'Rourke is ultimately how they treat the most disadvantaged Americans. While one of the cornerstones of O'Rourke's campaign was giving a voice to the voiceless Americans, Trump built his 2016 presidential campaign off of capitalizing on the hatred and bile some felt towards minority communities. When it comes down to it, although O'Rourke may have lost his chance of becoming president in 2020, and although Trump was... Able to get elected president in 2016, O'Rourke's commitment to all Americans, including those in the most vulnerable minority communities, is what makes him a better leader of his movement than Trump has been so far of the United States. A true leader should respect all of his or her people, including those who look or act differently from their leader. That is a quality that Trump has yet to convey. Well, O'Rourke has demonstrated that quality throughout his entire presidential campaign. The visit that he made to a gun show in Arkansas is proof that, while he may not agree with every single American, he is open to listening to the opinions of all Americans. According to Penn Gelly, O'Rourke said that, quote-unquote, There is a concerted, organized attack against immigrants, against people of color, against those who do not look like or pray like or love like the majority in this country. And this moment will define us one way or another. And if we do not wake up to it, I am convinced that we'll lose America, this country, in our sleep, and we cannot allow that to happen. End quote. This passion that O'Rourke had for making sure that there was never again another horrific shooting steeped in racism like that which occurred in El Paso, soon translated into a passion to fight for better gun safety measures, including the mandatory buyback program that Swalwell, Booker, de Blasio, and Gillenbrand had firmly supported. However, for many Americans, despite the fact that other Democratic presidential candidates had already voiced their support, for this policy, O'Rourke's fierce determination to make it a central focus of his presidential campaign made him arguably one of the most powerful voices in the gun control movement in the United States. In fact, as soon as August 6, 2019, O'Rourke was already recognizing that gun violence coupled with racism was what led to the horrific El Paso shooting. In an email to supporters on August 6, 2019, O'Rourke told them that, Though El Paso is a safe community, we are part of a country that is violent, a country that has failed to adopt laws that would allow us to perform a background check on everyone who wants to own a firearm, one that still allows weapons designed for war to be sold into our communities. We lost 40,000 of our fellow Americans to gun violence last year, inexplicable, but for the stranglehold that the gun lobby has on Congress and the White House and the fear that our elected representatives have the NRA, end quote. Many Democratic presidential candidates in the 2020 presidential race acknowledged the dangerous power of the NRA in the United States' politics and recognized the reforms that needed to be taken to make gun laws stronger and to weaken the power of the NRA. But seldom did they do it with the passion or frequency that O'Rourke did. Throughout the rest of his presidential campaign, O'Rourke stayed committed to tackling the issue of gun violence in the United States and made it no secret of what he was doing. Unlike Tim Ryan, O'Rourke did not tone down his commitment to a buyback program throughout his presidential campaign. That bold position certainly had to be invigorating to many gun control advocates, especially considering that Swalwell had been one of the first Democratic presidential candidates to drop out and not many of the other candidates had been making their gun control platforms as progressives as Swalwell's was. In emails to supporters such as the one that he sent on August 15th, 2019 titled, I need your help on this, O'Rourke made it clear that the El Paso shooting had changed his perspective on how to handle gun violence. In his August 15th email, O'Rourke indicated that, quote-unquote, I see more clearly now than I did two weeks ago that the 390 million guns in a country of 320 million, especially weapons of war, are an existential threat to this country. These guns, including the AK-47 variant that the El Paso terrorists used, are meant to be on battlefields, not here in El Paso. They're meant to kill as many people as efficiently as possible. We cannot sell assault weapons anymore, and we need to get them off our streets. End quote. O'Rourke, now a changed man after the horrific El Paso shooting, seemingly single-handedly was able to change the public conversation regarding gun violence. O'Rourke's August 15th email was just one of the many examples of his public statements regarding how the United States needs to adopt a mandatory buyback program. Through these statements, O'Rourke arguably became one of the most widely known public figures advocating for a mandatory buyback program. In fact, in a virtual meeting that O'Rourke had with Swalwell, Swalwell admitted to O'Rourke that, quote-unquote, you took this issue up and, to your credit, gave it a voice that I was not able to give it, end quote, as is documented in a video released by the Beto Media Twitter account. If it was Swalwell who introduced the mandatory buyback program to the United States, it was O'Rourke who made it famous. In fact, the mandatory buyback program has become so popular in the United States that it is supported by the majority of the American population. According to a nationwide poll that was documented in Test Bonds Hill article, majority of voters support assault weapons ban buybacks poll. However, with this much popularity, How is it that Swalwell, O'Rourke, Booker, de Blasio, Gillenbrand, and Harris were the only Democratic 2020 presidential candidates who made firm commitments to embracing a mandatory buyback program? After all, if the majority of the American people support this policy by a significant margin, According to Bond, this nationwide survey found that 59% of the American people support the implementation of a mandatory buyback program while 41% of Americans oppose it. Then it would seem to be more politically convenient for the rest of the Democratic presidential candidates to have embraced the idea. Well, one answer could come from the fact that Bond's article was released on September 26, 2019 after most of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates had already formulated their positions on gun control. That being said, O'Rourke and Harris's support for the mandatory buyback program both increased during the duration of their presidential campaigns, so it would have not been unprecedented for any of the other 2020 Democratic presidential candidates to have announced their support for a form of a mandatory buyback program during the middle of their presidential campaign. So then why did none of the other Democratic candidates come out in explicit support of a mandatory buyback program later in the presidential race? This question is one that was only amplified by the findings of other polls, such as a Quinnipiac poll that was released on August 29, 2019, that apparently found that, as recounted in Sahil Kapoor's Bloomberg article titled, 2020 Democrats Warm to Mandatory Buybacks of Assault Weapons, 71% of Democrats said that they were in support of the Mandatory Buyback Program. This was also a question that O'Rourke seemed to ask the American people and his Democratic presidential rival several times, always intent on defending his bold position as a supporter of the mandatory buyback program, a policy that was not shared by many of his, uh, the other major Democratic presidential candidates. One presidential candidate that repeatedly clashed with O'Rourke on his strong gun control plan was Pete Buttigieg on the October 15th. 2019 Democratic presidential debate, CNN anchor Anderson Cooper asked O'Rourke how he was going to enforce his mandatory buyback program if the American police were not going door-to-door to to see which Americans have assault weapons. In his response, O'Rourke explained, as documented by CNN's YouTube video called Mayor Pete Buttigieg to better O'Rourke, I don't need lessons from you, that, quote-unquote, I expect my fellow Americans to follow the law the same way we enforce any provision, any law that we have right now. We don't go door to door to do anything in this country to enforce the law. I expect Republicans, Democrats, gun owners, non-gun owners alike to respect and follow the law. End quote. Shortly thereafter, Cooper addressed Buttigieg, telling him that, Quote, unquote, just yesterday, you referred to mandatory buybacks as confiscation and said that Congressman O'Rourke has been picking a fight to try to stay relevant. Your response on guns, end quote. Buttigieg responded with, quote, unquote, Congressman, you just made it clear you don't know how this is actually going to take weapons off the streets. If you could develop the plan further, I think we could have a debate about it. But we can't wait. People are dying in the streets right now, end quote. Buttigieg went on to insinuate that O'Rourke's buyback plan was just a purity test and explained why he believes that the United States should focus on getting less extreme and more bipartisan gun control laws passed. O'Rourke was quick to respond to Buttigieg's criticism of his plan, remarking that, quote unquote, this is not a purity test. This is is a country that loses 40,000 of our fellow Americans every year to gun violence. This is a crisis. We've got to do something about it. And those challenges you described are not mutually exclusive to the challenges that I'm describing. I want to make sure that we have universal background checks and red flag laws and that we end the sale of these weapons of war. But to use the analogy of healthcare, care, be as though we said, look, we're, we're for primary care, but let's not talk about mental health care because that's a bridge too far. People need that primary care now, so let's save that for another day. No, let's decide what we are going to believe in, what we are going to achieve, and then let's bring this country together in order to do that. Listening to my fellow Americans, to those moms who demand action, to those students who march for our lives, who, in fact came up with this extraordinarily bold peace plan that calls for mandatory buybacks. Let's follow their inspiration and lead and not be limited by the polls and the consultants and the focus groups, end quote. Bujid shot back that. "Quote unquote, The problem isn't the polls, the problem is the policy, and I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal. Everyone on this stage is determined to get something done. Everyone on this stage recognizes, or at least I thought we did, that the problem is not other Democrats who don't agree with your particular idea on how to handle this. The problem is the National Rifle Association and their enablers in Congress, and we should be united in taking the fight to them, end quote. While Buttigieg was correct in articulating that the NRA and the congressmen supporting it have been a major part of the problem that many lawmakers have faced when trying to get legislation passed that would reduce gun violence, Buttigieg was not really addressing O'Rourke's mandatory buyback program. Buttigieg was merely pivoting to what was probably safer political territory for him by attacking the NRA. In actuality, however, it probably would have been a much more substantive debate if Buttigieg had, in this instance, voiced the concerns that he had about the mandatory buyback program itself instead of not addressing the policy directly. In his response to Buttigieg's criticisms and assertion that he did not need lessons from O'Rourke, O'Rourke responded with, quote-unquote, that's, that's, that's a mischaracterization. Anderson, I've got to answer this. I never took you or anyone else on who disagrees with this issue. But when you, Mayor Buttigieg, describe this policy as a shiny object... I don't care what that meant to me or my candidacy, but to those who've survived gun violence, those who've lost a loved one to an AR-15 and AK-47, march for our lives, formed in this courage of students willing to stand up to the NRA and conventional politics and poll-tested politicians, that was a slap in the face to every single one of those groups and every single survivor of a mass casualty assault with an AR-15 and an AK-47. We must buy them back. End quote. In his engaging response, O'Rourke mentioned Buttigieg calling the mandatory buyback program a shiny object. This was a reference to a bit of a feud that O'Rourke had with Buttigieg over the, their gun control plans. Buttigieg had called the mandatory buyback program a shiny object. When Buttigieg was asked in an interview about O'Rourke's buyback plan, Budaj remarked that, quote-unquote, I get it, he needs to pick a fight in order to stay relevant, end quote. As recounted in Greg Nash's The Hill article, titled, O'Rourke Hits Back at Buttigieg Over Criticism of His Gun Buyback Proposal. O'Rourke responded to Buttigieg's attack on him by tweeting that, quote-unquote, Pete can belittle the grassroots. He can call buybacks a shiny object. He can say whatever he wants. But guns kill 40,000 people each year. Those people deserve action. I'll be fighting for them. End quote. Booker and Harris, two other supporters of the mandatory buyback program, also attacked Buttigieg for his frequent criticism of the proposal, with Booker tweeting, quote-unquote, Calling buyback programs confiscation is doing the NRA's work for them, at Pete Buttigieg, and they don't need our help, end quote. Clearly, though. Buttigieg calling the mandatory buyback program a shiny object was not a very progressive way to push the conversation on gun control forward in new and creative ways, and O'Rourke was right to have pointed this out. The conflict that O'Rourke had with Buttigieg in the October fifteenth, two 2019 Democratic debate proved that he was able to successfully defend his policies from the attacks of the Democratic front-running candidates like Buttigieg. It was arguably one of the most definitive moments in the story of O'Rourke's defense of the mandatory buyback program and made it clear that he was never going to tone down his vision for the United States for mere political convenience. O'Rourke recognized that, generally speaking, the Democratic platform on gun control had changed very little since the 1990s and wanted to move the conversation on this issue forward in a meaningful way despite how hard more moderate Democrats such as Buttigieg resisted this policy. The sheer amount of time that O'Rourke took to talk about this truly pressing issue definitely made him the key voice in American politics arguing for a buyback of assault weapons, at least in the eyes of many Americans across the United States. The true test for O'Rourke to defend his buyback policy came not from criticism from his fellow Democrats, but rather criticism from Republicans. Sometimes these criticisms were quite outlandish and were perceived as threats against O'Rourke, but the true test for O'Rourke was whether he would continue defending his policy as firmly as he had been doing so, despite the threats that were made against him. In one particular instance, as explained in Brendan Cole's Newsweek article titled, GOP Rep. Briscoe Kane to be reported to FBI after telling Beto O'Rourke, my AR is ready for you. A Republican lawmaker from Texas named Briscoe Kane responded to O'Rourke's fiery statement that he would implement a mandatory buyback program from the September 12, 2019 Democratic presidential debate by saying that, quote unquote, my AR is ready for you, Robert Francis. End quote. Kane referred to O'Rourke as Robert Francis because Robert Francis O'Rourke is technically O'Rourke's legal name. Many people at the time acknowledged that Kane's comment sounded very ambiguously threatening. O'Rourke picked up on the threatening manner of Kane's comment and tweeted back that, quote-unquote, This is a death threat, Representative. Clearly, you shouldn't own an AR-15, and neither should anyone else. End quote. This response proved that Rourke was able to defend his policy even under pressure and facing horrifying threats. It should be noted that Kane faces the repercussions of his perceived threat. Kane's tweet was removed by Twitter, which saw Kane's tweet as in violation of its rule against threatening violence towards others. And Kane himself was apparently reported to the FBI. Kane, however, despite all of the pushback that he received for his initial tweet, did not tone down his criticisms of O'Rourke and the mandatory buyback program. In an interview that is documented in ABC 13 Houston's YouTube video, Lawmakers, my AR is ready for you, tweet to Beto, it was not a threat. When asked about whether he believes the government could implement O'Rourke's mandatory buyback program, Kane responded with, quote unquote, over my dead body. It's not going to happen. And so, I think it's terrible. It's a bad idea to take things from the American people. End quote. Kane was not the only one to seemingly threaten O'Rourke over his mandatory buyback program. On March 6th, 2020, Colorado's Congressman Ken Buck tweeted a video of himself standing in his office. Beside Buck in the video was an AR-15 displayed on his wall. In this video... Buck says, quote, unquote, I have a message for Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke. If you want to take everyone's AR-15 in America, why don't you swing by my office in Washington, D.C. and start with this one, end quote. Buck then proceeded to take the AR-15 off the wall and posed with it, ending the video by saying, quote, unquote, come and take it, end quote. According to Dan Mangan's CNBC article titled, GOP Rep Ken Buck wields AR-15 in office, dares Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke to come and take it, Buck told the Washington Post back in 2015 that the AR-15 that he keeps in his office in Washington, D.C. has a trigger lock on it and is unloaded. Buck also explained that the bolt carrier assembly that is required to fire AR-15s was removed from his AR-15 before he brought it to Washington, D.C. Nevertheless, many viewed Buck's video as a threat against Beto O'Rourke and Biden. The same day that Buck posted this video, O'Rourke responded appropriately and directly, tweeting, quote unquote, This guy makes the case for both an assault weapons ban and a mandatory buyback program better than I ever could. These are weapons of war that have no place in our communities, in our politics, or in our public discourse. End quote. O'Rourke's ability to defend himself against the inappropriate criticisms of some of these Republican lawmakers in a dignified manner and his willingness to continue to defend his support of his mandatory buyback program despite receiving what have been perceived as death threats shows the United States that O'Rourke is one of the most definitive and powerful voices in defending the mandatory buyback program. O'Rourke's commitment to the program, despite being criticized by prominent Democrats and Republicans alike, should be commended as a great example of a forward-thinking and independent politician. Despite his impressive stances and independent thinking that set him apart from many of his Democratic presidential rivals, O'Rourke unfortunately dropped out of the 2020 Democratic presidential race on November 1st, 2019. O'Rourke as recounted by Dartonoro Clark and Alex seitz NBC News article titled, Better O'Rourke Ends His Presidential Bid After a Campaign Failed to Take Off. When he dropped out of the presidential race, O'Rourke had not yet qualified for the November 20th Democratic presidential debate and was lagging with fundraising and in the polls. O'Rourke addressed his supporters on November 1st as some of his volunteers cried. O'Rourke announced that, quote unquote, this is a campaign that has prided itself on seeing things clearly. We do not have the means to pursue this campaign successfully, end quote. O'Rourke's departure from the presidential race caught the attention of President Trump, who mocked O'Rourke by tweeting on November 1st, quote-unquote, Oh no! Beto just dropped out of the race for president despite him saying he was born for this. I don't think so, end quote. Trump had not been this vocal about some of the other Democratic presidential candidates who dropped out of the presidential race, so it really was telling that Trump took the time to insult O'Rourke. O'Rourke seemed to acknowledge his importance in shaping the conversation on gun violence in a tweet that he posted on November 1st, which read, quote-unquote, let us continue to fearlessly champion the issues and causes that brought us together. Whether it is ending the epidemic of gun violence, or dismantling structural racism, or successfully confronting climate change, we will continue to organize and mobilize and act. End quote. After all, although Swalwell was one of the first major politicians to fight for the implementation of mandatory buybacks, O'Rourke is probably the most well known politician who is known for defending them. His campaign lasted all the way up to November, during which he was able to challenge the more moderate positions of some of his Democratic rivals, like Buttigieg. In an email to his supporters that O'Rourke sent out on November 1st, he explained that, quote-unquote, "...our campaign has been about seeing clearly, speaking honestly, and acting decisively in the best interests of America." Though it is difficult to accept, it is clear to me now that this campaign does not have the means to move forward successfully. My service to this country will not be as a candidate or as the nominee. Acknowledging this now is in the best interests of those in the campaign. It is in the best interests of this party as we seek to unify around a nominee. And it is in the best interests of the country. I decided to run for president because I believed that I could help bring a divided country together in common cause to confront the greatest set of challenges we've ever faced. I also knew that the most fundamental of them is fear, the fear that Donald Trump wants us to feel about one another. The very real fear that too many in this country live under, and the fear that we sometimes feel when it comes to doing the right thing, especially when it runs counter to what is politically convenient or popular, end quote. Doing the right thing, even when it is not popular or politically convenient, not only defines O'Rourke's presidential campaign, but also his gun control policies. When it was first introduced into the political conversation, the mandatory buyback program certainly did not have overwhelming support, but O'Rourke made it a cornerstone of his presidential campaign anyway. O'Rourke continued his November 1st email to supporters by explaining how, quote-unquote, I knew that we would have to be unafraid in how we ran the campaign. We'd have to run with nothing to lose. And I knew that our success would depend not on PACs or corporations, but upon the grassroots volunteers and supporters from everywhere, especially from those places that have been overlooked or taken for granted. We should be proud of what we fought for and what we were able to achieve. Together, we were able to help change what is possible when it comes to the policies that we care about and the country we want to serve. We released the first comprehensive plan to confront climate change of any of the presidential candidates. We took the boldest approach to gun safety in American history. We confronted institutional, systemic racism and called out Donald Trump for his white supremacy and the violence that he's encouraged against communities that don't look like, pray like, or love like the majority in this country. And we were one of the first to reject all PAC money, corporate contributions, special interest donations, and lobbyist help. We proposed an economic program that focused on both equality and equity, and would give every American the certainty that one job would be enough, and a health care plan that would guarantee that every one of us is well enough to live to our full potential. We knew the only way our country would live up to its promise is if everyone could stand up to be counted. We released the most ambitious voter registration and voting rights plan, one that would bring 55 million new voters into our democracy and remove barriers for those who've been silenced because of their race, ethnicity, or the fact that they live with a disability. We spoke with pride about El Paso and communities of immigrants. We elevated the plight and the promise of refugees and asylum seekers, and we proposed nothing short of rewriting this country's immigration laws in our own image to forever free from fear more than 11 million of our fellow Americans who should be able to contribute even more to our shared success. And at this moment of truth for our country, we lay bare the cost and consequence of Donald Trump the rise in hate crimes, the terror attack in El Paso, the perversion of the Constitution, the diminished standing of the United States around the world. But we also made clear the common responsibility to confront him, to hold him accountable and ensure that he does not serve another term in office. Committing ourselves to this task, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Americans first before we are anything else. I am grateful to each one of you, and to all the people who made up the heart and soul of this campaign. You are among the hundreds of thousands of our fellow Americans who made a donation, signed up to volunteer, or spread the word about this campaign and our opportunity to help decide the election of our lifetime. You have been with me from the beginning, through it all. I know that you did it not for me personally, not for the Democratic Party, but for our country at this defining moment. Though today we are suspending this campaign, let us each continue our commitment to the country in whatever capacity we can. Let us continue to fearlessly champion the issues and causes that brought us together. Whether it is ending the epidemic of gun violence or dismantling structural racism or successfully confronting climate change before it is too late, we will continue to organize and mobilize and act in the best interests of America. We will work to ensure that the Democratic nominee is successful in defeating Donald Trump in 2020. I can tell you firsthand from having the chance to know the candidates, we will be well served by any one of them and I'm going to be proud to support whoever that nominee is and proud to call them president in January 2021 because they will win. We must support them in the race against Donald Trump and support them in their administration afterwards. Do all that we can to help them heal a wounded country and bring us together in meeting the greatest set of challenges we have ever known. I'm confident I will see you down the road and I look forward to that day. Thank you for making this campaign possible and for continuing to believe that we can turn this moment of great peril into a moment of great promise for America and the world. With you always and forever grateful, Beto. End quote. Again Movement began, the backstory, The New Yorker, that was released on YouTube by The New Yorker, explains how the Never Again Movement began. Shortly after the school shooting that took place in Parkland, Cameron Caskey, a survivor of the Parkland shooting, was able to start the Never Again Movement, which was dedicated to ensuring that there would never again be another school shooting that would claim the lives of innocent students. The Never Again movement gained some support and momentum after the Parkland school shooting as increasingly more Americans felt motivated to protect innocent children from being murdered in learning environments. The Parkland shooting led to the March for Our Lives nationwide protest against gun violence. The impact of the Parkland shooting even influenced lawmakers to pass gun safety legislation. As is explained in Margaret Kramer and Jennifer Harlan's New York Times article titled, Parkland Shooting, Where Gun Control and School Safety Stand Today. At the time of the Parkland school shooting, there were no laws in place that could have prevented the shooter in Parkland, Nicholas Cruz, who had a troubled record and ample reasons not to be trusted with a weapon from purchasing a gun. However, a law passed after the Parkland school shooting by the Florida state government enables law enforcement to, with judicial approval, stop a person deemed dangerous from owning guns for up to a year. Additionally, the federal government was able to pass a national ban on bump stocks. Although this was the only major gun control legislation passed by the federal government since the Parkland shooting, it is still quite important. As indicated in Laura Jarrett's CNN article titled, Trump administration officially bans bump stocks, the ban on bump stocks was officially put in place by the Trump administration. Perhaps the ban on bump stocks will be one of the most positive and or only positive pieces of legislation to have come out of the Trump administration. Just like Swalwell said, quote unquote, Hope died in Parkland over a year ago, but in a uniquely American way, through the strength and courage of our children. Hope was born here too. However, despite gaining some great momentum and even getting some meaningful legislation passed, the Never Again movement unfortunately soon began to lose momentum as the United States concerned itself with other social and political issues. When Swalwell ran for president, the focus of American politics did not seem to be on gun control. And then, in early August of two thousand nineteen. The nation was shook to its core once again when gunmen shot up a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and historic district of Dayton, Ohio, as recounted in Jason Silverstein's CBS article titled, There Were More Mass Shootings Than Days in 2019. So many Americans had pledged that after the shooting in Parkland, there would never again be another mass shooting. And yet, here the nation was again confronted with the same dilemma that had tortured it for decades now. In an email to supporters titled El Paso that O'Rourke sent to his supporters on August 6, 2019, he explained the situation during which the violence that took place in El Paso could have happened, writing, quote-unquote, at a rally in Florida in May. President Trump asked how America could stop immigrants from coming into the country. Shoot them, someone yelled back. As the crowd roared their approval, the president smiled. That violence, that hatred, that fear found us on Saturday. Drove more than 600 miles to a community that is 85% Mexican-American. A community of first and second generation immigrants. It walked into one of the busiest Walmarts in the country. Full of families from El Paso and our sister city of Ciudad Juarez. And killed 22 people. A 90-year-old man shot dead next to the wife he'd been married to for 70 years. A 15-year-old boy about to start his sophomore year in high school. Young parents, both of them murdered as they shielded their two-month-old son. End quote. These heartbreaking stories of these innocent civilians that were shot down in El Paso are examples of the thousands of stories of thousands of Americans whose lives will be cut short by the gun violence epidemic that has plagued the United States for years. There is no way that we can bring back the 22 people that were murdered in El Paso, nor can we do anything to help the innocent children that were gunned down in Parkland. All we can do is work to ensure that these victims did not die in vain and that their deaths can have an impact on how the United States moves forward. After what happened in Parkland, Americans around the country promised that there would never again be a mass shooting that would claim innocent lives. And yet, El Paso and Dayton are two examples of the systematic problem that the United States has with gun violence. And they are just two examples of many. According to Adil Hassan's New York Times article titled, 14 children died in the Parkland shooting. Nearly 1,200 have died from guns since. Since the Parkland shooting, almost 1,200 more children have died as a result of gun violence. And Hassan's article was written in February of 2019, so it is not even a current representation of the terrifying number of children who have died from guns. While some of these shootings, such as those that occurred in Dayton and El Paso, were highly publicized, the outrageous quantity of mass shootings in the United States meant that not all of them received the publicity that they deserved. This ought to be a referendum on all Americans, Democrats and Republicans alike. Every time there is a mass shooting in the United States, Americans express their grief and sadness over the event, and there is sometimes anger felt to the institutions that allowed these shootings to take place Protests sometimes break out as Americans seek to make a statement about how they want more legislation to be passed in order to limit gun violence. Sometimes the requested legislation is quickly passed and sometimes it is not so easily acted upon. However, the disturbing trend that deserves to be commented on is that after some time of protests, many of these Americans will return to their homes and eventually become less vocal about advancing the goals of the gun control movement. Oftentimes, the legislation needed to prevent another mass shooting from taking place has not been acted upon by lawmakers by this stage of the habitual cyclical nature of mass shootings and their fallouts. However, some Americans will remain relatively silent about gun violence until the next major mass shooting takes place. If we are to put an end, once and for all, to the epidemic of gun violence facing the United States, all Americans must not stop speaking out against gun violence until the important legislative change needed to end it is acted upon. One policy that seems to be the most well adept at limiting gun violence while still clearly abiding by the Second Amendment is the mandatory buyback program. Both Swalwell and O'Rourke were aware of the potential effectiveness of a mandatory buyback program, and it is about time that more prominent Democratic politicians announce their support of the program. Research and precedent has shown that a mandatory buyback program would prove incredibly effective. In fact, according to Robert Gebelhoff in his Washington Post article titled, This is How We Save Lives from Gun Violence, quote-unquote, in the 1990s, Australia spent $500 million to buy back almost 600,000 guns. Harvard University researchers found that the gun homicide rate dropped 42% in the seven years following the law, and the gun suicide rate fell 58%. An Australian study found that for every 3,500 guns withdrawn per 100,000 people, the government was able to achieve a 74% drop in gun suicides. In fact, since the ban, the country has not experienced another mass shooting. End quote. Gamble-Hoff goes on to explain that, while this does not necessarily prove that Australia's mandatory buyback program decreased the gun violence incidents, it is certainly likely that this was the case. To have such a remarkable decrease in gun violence cases following the implementation of a mandatory buyback program shows us that the United States should seriously consider implementing this kind of policy. Admittedly, it would cost the United States much more money than it did Australia to buy back all of the assault weapons in the country. However, the lives and the safety of the American people are worth the money that it will take to protect them. German Lopez's Vox article, I've covered gun violence for years, the solutions aren't a big mystery, echoes many of the ideas that I have discussed here. Lopez even details the cyclical nature of gun violence in the United States, as I did, writing, "Quote unquote, Since I began covering mass shootings at Vox, I've seen the same pattern play out again and again. A shooting happens, there are demands for action, maybe something gets introduced in Congress, the debate goes back and forth for a bit, the, then people move on, usually after a week or two, although Parkland was an exception. Then, eventually, there's another mass shooting and the cycle begins anew, end quote. However, in my opinion, one of the most important excerpts from Lopez's article comes when he explains how Quote, unquote, America's attention to gun control often focuses on a few specific measures. Universal background checks, restrictions on people with mental illnesses buying firearms, and an assault weapons ban, for example. It is rare that American politicians, even on the left, go much further than that. Something like Australia's law, which amounts to a confiscation program, is never seriously considered. End quote. If we are ever going to overcome this gun violence epidemic, we have to seriously consider enacting a mandatory buyback program. Some of the United States' most concerning problems, such as slavery and the Great Depression, were arguably only ever overcome when the American leaders at that time enacted progressive reforms that did not have universal support from all Americans. The gun violence epidemic has been plaguing the United States for decades, and multiple experts on the topic have come to the conclusion that a mandatory buyback program would significantly regress the number of gun violence cases in the United States. The amount of time that gun violence has been one of the major problems facing American society only raises awareness to the fact that although the Democratic Party sometimes prides itself on having grown so much more progressive on many issues with every passing year, the Democratic Party's general stance on gun violence has not really changed since the 1990s. In Megan Keneally's ABC News article titled, Understanding the 1994 assault weapons ban and why it ended, Keneally clearly articulates how, In 1994, United States President Bill Clinton signed what was known as the Federal Assault Weapons Ban into law. This law banned the transfer, manufacture, and possession of semi-automatic assault weapons. However, There were a variety of loopholes in this law. Accessories used to make less advanced guns fire at a similar rate to semi-automatic assault weapons were not banned by the law. Also semi-automatic assault weapons that were created before this law was passed were exempt from the ban. This ban expired in 2004 and all semi-automatic assault weapons were legal once again. If you look at the political stances of democratic politicians today on gun control, They really have not changed all that much. In fact, in Teresa Lowe's USA Today article titled... Amy Klobuchar, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, shares her views on current issues. Former 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar planned to deal with the issue of gun violence by banning assault weapons in high-capacity magazines, banning bump stocks, implementing universal background checks, closing the boyfriend loophole, closing the Charleston loophole, prevent people with significant mental illnesses from possessing guns, and investing in research to study gun violence. Although Klobuchar's position could probably be considered somewhat more progressive than the gun control positions that many Democrats held in the 1990s, many of these policies that Klobuchar holds today are really the same policies that Democrats in the 1990s were trying to implement. And Klobuchar is far from the only prominent Democratic politician to have this predicament many of the presidential candidates in the most recent democratic presidential primary in the presidential election of 2020 hold incredibly similar positions on gun control to those held by klobuchar it is about time that the general democratic platform on gun safety reforms begin to change after all although there have been several new policy positions that the democratic party has adopted since the 1990s that would make a significant difference in ending gun violence The major policy positions that the Democratic Party generally holds on gun safety reforms remains unchanged. Hopefully, the prominence of a mandatory ban and buyback of assault weapons is a sign that the Democratic Party is becoming more progressive in its handling of gun violence. Another sign that the Democratic Party is improving in its political response to gun violence is the prominence that Beto O'Rourke, seems to have in the presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden's presidential campaign. O'Rourke endorsed Biden in March of 2020, and as is documented in Todd J. Gilman's Dallas Morning News article titled, Beto blank yes, O'Rourke's endorsement has Joe Biden fending off Allegation that he's a gun grabber. Biden told a crowd of supporters when speaking about O'Rourke that, Quote, unquote, I'm going to guarantee you this is not the last you've seen of this guy. You're going to take care of the gun problem with me. You're going to be the one that leads this effort. I'm counting on you. End quote. This announcement by Biden that he will make sure that O'Rourke has a major part to play in his gun safety reform plans should make many gun safety advocates hopeful. O'Rourke has been one of the most committed voices in American politics that has been advocating for a mandatory buyback program. Given the resources and influence of Biden and his campaign, O'Rourke should definitely be able to amplify his message about why a mandatory buyback would save lives and communicate his ideas to a wider audience. Additionally, if Biden is elected as the next president of the United States in November of 2020, there is a sizable chance that O'Rourke will have a major role to play in the Biden administration in regards to implementing gun safety measures such as a mandatory buyback plan. Although the American public's attention is not centered around the 2020 presidential election at the moment, when the time comes to vote on election day, gun violence advocates should remember that a victory for Biden would also be a victory for O'Rourke and his great ideas on how to handle the gun violence epidemic. Ultimately, I do not think that this is the last that we have heard of the mandatory buyback program. Events such as O'Rourke and Biden's partnership give me hope that a mandatory buyback program will re-emerge, hopefully sooner rather than later. It is a policy that has been introduced into our political consciousness. We now have to do the work to ensure that it is not forgotten. The legacy of the mandatory buyback program now rests in the hands of the American people. One day, some Americans will hopefully revive this program and make sure that they finish what Swalwell and O'Rourke started. I truly believe that when the dust settles... Americans decades from now will recognize Swalwell as one of the United States' greatest unsung heroes, for as Benji Sarlin indicates in his NBC News article titled, Questions and Answers with the Lawmaker Who Wants Your Assault Weapons. Swalwell largely introduced the idea of a mandatory buyback program into American politics, taking Australia's example of an incredibly successful mandatory buyback program as inspiration. Swalwell seemingly recognized that the Democratic Party's platform on gun safety reforms had to be strengthened, and by introducing this political policy into major American politics made the conversation on gun violence in the United States more comprehensive and intelligent. So some credit should definitely be attributed to Swalwell, who was able to fight for the safety of school children across the United States with this mandatory buyback program. When the mandatory buyback program becomes prominent once again, and it will, I believe that Americans will look back at Swalwell and his plans and arguments for inspiration on how to properly frame their cases for a mandatory buyback program. In MSNBC's video, Swalwell, on why he says we should ban and buy back assault weapons, Swalwell explains the importance of a mandatory buyback program, illustrating how, quote-unquote, a child's right to learn without fear and to come home after school and to live is greater than any other right. I don't accept the premise that an assault weapon is covered by the Second Amendment, and I'm convinced that if we are truly going to make our community safer, We should get these weapons off the street, and I want to compensate folks for doing that or allow them to use their weapons at a hunting club or a shooting range, but if we leave 15 million assault weapons on the street and we continue to do nothing, we should expect more mass shootings, and I just don't think we should accept that. I think we should go big on this issue and even invest in getting the guns off the streets. End quote. Swalwell is absolutely right. If we do not go big on this issue, there are going to be more stories just like we saw in Parkland and El Paso. At this point, we have seen that an assault weapons ban would be somewhat effective in countering the growing epidemic of gun violence. However, at this point, all signs point to an assault weapons ban and mandatory buyback being the most effective mechanism in our current American politics that we can use against gun violence. The implementation of a mandatory ban and buyback of all semi-automatic assault weapons would exponentially improve the safety of school children across the United States and would allow Americans to go to stores and concerts without the fear of being shot dead. Obviously, in the future, when the mandatory buyback program inevitably regains prominence in our political atmosphere, some credit must be owed to O'Rourke who gave the mandatory buyback program an incredible platform in his campaign and communicated it to a fantastic number of Americans. And should Biden win the 2020 presidential election, O'Rourke would probably play an important role in his administration and will be able to work to implement some of his gun safety reforms, such as a mandatory buyback program. After all, we know from an interview that Biden took with CNN's Anderson Cooper, part of which can be found in CNN's video, Biden, I would institute a national buyback program, that Biden is open to the idea of a buyback program. In this video, Biden proclaims his support for instituting another assault weapons ban, similar to the federal assault weapons ban of 1994, into law. Cooper pointed out that the final studies of the effectiveness of this ban did not show that there was an incredible reduction of gun violence due to the fact that the assault weapons ban simply did not take the many assault weapons that were already owned by Americans off the streets of the United States. Biden countered Cooper's point by asking, quote unquote, do we want to continue it? Does anybody think it made any sense that someone's able to walk into a gun store, buy an assault weapon that has multiple rounds, or buy an assault weapon that has a hundred rounds, even though it may not you can't point to the fact that it in fact it stopped it before. Do you want more of them on the street? Do we want to do that? End quote. Cooper then prefaced his next question by saying, quote unquote. To gun owners out there who say, well, a Biden administration means they're going to come for my guns, and quote. Biden instantly responded with, quote, unquote, bingo. You're right if you have an assault weapon. The fact of the matter is they should be illegal, period. Look, the Second Amendment doesn't say you can't restrict the kinds of weapons people can own. You can't buy a bazooka. You can't have a flamethrower, end quote. This was a very intelligent response that Biden provided. It does not make much sense that Second Amendment enthusiasts would argue that the federal government is not legally permitted to restrict the kinds of weapons that Americans can own. The Second Amendment provides Americans with the privilege to bear arms, but it never specifies what kind of arms. Clearly, Americans are not constitutionally entitled to own all weapons because, as Biden said, Weapons such as bazookas and flamethrowers are not legal for normal American citizens to own. In that case, it should be within the parameters of the Second Amendment for the federal government to restrict the American public's access to semi-automatic assault weapons, which, as is mentioned in Robert Johnson and Jeffrey Ingersoll's Business Insider article titled It's Incredible How Much Guns Have Advanced Since the Second Amendment, were first introduced long after the Second Amendment was made to the Constitution of the United States. Arguably, the most interesting moment from Biden's interview with Cooper, however, came when Cooper asked Biden about how he would deal with all the assault weapons that Americans had already legally purchased and owned. Biden responded with, quote, unquote, "What I would do is I would try to." I would institute a national buyback program, and I would move in the direction of making sure that, in fact, was what we tried to do, get them off the street, end quote. Shortly thereafter, Biden somewhat walked back his commitment to a national buyback program. However, this moment seemed to reveal that Biden was interested in some form of a national buyback program. Given the fact that Biden now seems to have a serious chance at becoming the next president of the United States and the instance in which Biden pledged to make O'Rourke the leader in his efforts to tackle gun violence, it seems very likely that Biden will be willing to allow O'Rourke to try to implement some form of a national buyback program. This probability and likelihood of Biden being sympathetic to the idea of a national buyback program is one that all Americans should keep in mind as they go to cast their ballots in November. Now, I would be doing a disservice to my listeners if I did not address in this podcast the issue that has consumed the lives of so many Americans, that being police brutality When I first learned of the horrifying murder of George Floyd and struggled to come to terms with the systematic racism that still exists in our society, I kept thinking about one particular quote from one of the greatest American heroes to ever live, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. King's quote came in his famous I Have a Dream speech when he was speaking about the injustice and cruelty that had been enforced on African Americans for generations. King pledged that the civil rights activists could never be satisfied as long as the African American, quote-unquote, is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality, End quote. That was in 1963. It is now 2020, nearly 60 years after King delivered his famous speech to the American people. African Americans are still being unjustly murdered by police officers and hateful vigilantes. The story of George Floyd is just one of the many heartbreaking stories of victims of police brutality. We should heed the advice that King provided us with back in 1963 and make it clear that we will not be satisfied until police brutality against African Americans has come to an end. We must all stand up in solidarity and show the world that we will not tolerate police violence against African Americans any longer. We must send a message to our elected officials that major structural changes and reforms have to take place to ensure that never again is another African American's life unjustly cut short due to the epidemic of police brutality. As King said, we can never be satisfied until police brutality against African Americans ends. Now, one aspect of the debate on gun violence that needs to be addressed is that police brutality against african americans is gun violence this sentiment is detailed perfectly by Derek thompson in his atlantic article titled the overlooked role of guns in the police reform debate thompson starts off this article by indicating that quote unquote the story i can't get out of my head is the death of philando castile in the summer of 2016 in the suburbs of saint paul minnesota Castile, a 32-year-old black man, was pulled over in a car he was driving, along with his partner and her four-year-old daughter. How are you? Castile asked the approaching officer, according to a published transcript. Good, said the cop, a 28-year-old Hispanic American named Jeronimo Yanez. At the driver's side window, he asked for a license and proof of insurance. Sir, I have to tell you, Castile said. I have a firearm on me. As his mother would later tell the New York Times, she had instructed her son to comply, comply, comply with law enforcement. So he did. The statement made the officer nervous. Don't reach for it, Yanez said. The gun, he meant. I'm, Castile replied, I was reaching for the wallet, he meant. Don't pull it out. I'm not pulling it out. He's not pulling it out. Castile's partner affirmed. Don't pull it out, Yanez yelled again. Then, the officer unholstered his own gun and fired seven shots at point-blank range. Five bullets hit Castile. Two pierced his heart. Within minutes, he was dead. A licensed firearm sat untouched in the dead man's pocket. Philando Castile was shot and killed, reaching for his wallet. The following summer, Yanez was found not guilty of second-degree manslaughter by a jury of 12 men and women. His lawyers had argued, persuasively it seems, that the mere presence of a gun, even untouched, in the trousers of a man with legal permit to carry it, was enough to exonerate the point-blank execution of an innocent black driver with a busted brake light. End quote. This horrifying, yet very important and relevant story of Castile's death very much echoes the same premises under which many innocent African Americans are murdered by police officers today. Castile's death back in 2016 should have been a turning point in American history and should have encouraged legislators to pass real laws that would actually make a difference in ending the systematic racism that has found its way deep into the American law enforcement. If change had happened back in 2016 to end the systematic racism embedded in our society, perhaps Americans like George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and Rayshard Brooks, and others, would still be alive today. But this podcast has been primarily focused on examining gun violence and some of the policies that could reduce it. So how does Castile's story relate to gun violence, one may ask? Well, As Thompson points out in his article, Castile was set up to die by a country that proclaimed his inviolable right to a gun, legally approved his right to carry, and then excused his killing by virtue of the fact that the object he'd been permitted to keep in his pocket could also be used as a precondition for his slaughter. Castile was killed by a cop in a country where it is more dangerous for a black man to exercise his Second Amendment right than it is for a white man. That is undeniable. But he also died at the hands of a culture that, in celebrating widespread gun ownership, "...makes it all but inevitable that the United States has more armed police than similarly rich countries, more panicky officers, more adversarial police encounters, more officer shootings, and more civilian killings." This examination by Thompson of police brutality and killings of African Americans is very important today to acknowledge. It also acknowledges the hypocrisy of those who celebrate the right to own a gun in the United States, but simultaneously excuse the killings of some African Americans because of their ownership of guns. In his article, Thompson does away with the myth that more guns in the United States make Americans safer. As Thompson points out in his article, quote unquote, let's begin with the simplest fact. Life is more dangerous in the presence of firearms, period. Period. A 2013 study of U.S. states in the American Journal of Public Health found that for each percentage point increase in gun ownership, the overall firearm homicide rate increased by 0.9%, controlling for other factors. The correlation between gun availability and violent crime is statistically significant at every level of income. More money can spare Americans from the material and psychological ravages of poverty, but it does not buy an exception from the deadly social physics of guns. End quote. Thompson goes on to explain how the dangerous situation that many Americans find themselves in today regarding their relationships with the police may be a result of gun violence. Thompson elaborates on his message by describing how, quote-unquote, Both police militarization and this pernicious warrior mentality are a direct response to gun violence and mass shootings. After the 1965 Watts Riot in Los Angeles, where police officers faced sniper rifle over several bloody days, the LAPD responded by creating the nation's first SWAT team. After the University of Texas clock tower shootings the following year, Other police departments added their own quasi-military units. In 1997, the LAPD faced off against two bank robbers in North Hollywood who held off the officers with automatic rifles and body armor. This highly publicized event spurred police departments to arm patrol officers with heavy weapons and the AR-15 rifle, a semi-automatic civilian version of the military's M-16 rifle, became the weapon of choice for patrol officers. Stoughton wrote in the Wake Forest Law Review in 2016, end quote. Thompson was referring to Seth W. Stoughton a professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Thompson's analysis of how dangerous the police have become is one that many Americans today should take account of. According to Thompson and his extensive research, the militarization of the police force, which has frequently been criticized today since it has led to the untimely deaths of increasingly more Americans, many of whom are often African Americans, really first came into effect when American citizens began getting their hands on more dangerous weapons of war. Many of these weapons are the ones that would be bought back if the gun safety plans that Swallow and O'Rourke had introduced were ever implemented. One can hope that perhaps if the increasing availability of dangerous guns led to an increase in the militarization of the police force, and in turn an increase in the number of racially charged shootings and killings by the police force, then a lack of availability of dangerous guns could lead to a demilitarization of the police force and just maybe a decline in the number of racially charged shootings that have plagued the United States for far too many years. Obviously, a decrease in the number of dangerous guns available to citizens would not solve the problem of racism in the police force. However, I'm willing to bet That a decrease in the number of guns that American citizens own would mean that more American citizens like George Floyd would walk away from their encounters with law enforcement officers. In his own article, Thompson echoes this same sentiment, describing how, quote unquote, gun prevalence increases civilian violence and officer shootings, which makes cops more concerned about getting killed which, in turn, leads officers to bedeck themselves in quasi-military gear, escalate conflicts that don't deserve escalation, and, too often, shoot and kill. End As Americans, we have an obligation to fight for the protection of each other and to ensure that all Americans have access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, These rights are frequently being denied to our fellow Americans to this very day. African Americans especially have been experiencing many obstacles to living out these key American values. Now, however, there seems to be ample evidence to support the idea that the easy access to dangerous guns has made it more challenging for many African Americans to live their lives without an underlying fear of the police force. If there is a chance that eliminating the assault weapons across the United States would make the African American community safer. We have to take that chance. And it seems like the one policy that could remove assault weapons from American citizens more successfully than any other policy in our American political atmosphere is the mandatory buyback program. By enacting this program, the United States would be able to eliminate any need for the police force to be as armed as it is now. After all, as is explained in Alexander Smith's NBC News article titled, The Vast Majority of UK Police Don't Carry Guns, Here's Why. In the United Kingdom, most of the police force do not carry guns, because most of the people living in the United Kingdom do not have guns. In the instances in which the Metropolitan Police Force of the United Kingdom does have to use firearms, the instances very rarely involve the police killing anyone. Seemingly, as a result of the much safer nature of the communities in the United Kingdom, quote unquote, the Metropolitan Police carried out some 3,300 deployments involving firearms in 2016. They didn't fire a single shot at a suspect. It's a world away from the United States where cops killed 1,092 people in 2016, according to figures compiled by The Guardian, end quote. If we are being realistic with ourselves and with the massive societal problems that we now face, we must recognize that the police violence against African Americans is gun violence. And one of the solutions to reducing gun violence could also greatly reduce police violence against African Americans. By enacting a mandatory buyback program, we could ensure that there are no more heartbreakingly tragic stories similar to Castile's. If we are truly going to take King's wise messages to heart and pledge that to never be satisfied until police brutality against African American ends, then we must advocate for the implementation of a mandatory buyback program. Ultimately, it is time for all Americans to unite in the campaign to combat gun violence because this is a danger to American society that affects all Americans. As I previously explained, I believe that when the day comes when we as Americans put aside partisan politics and take on gun violence as a unified country, we will recognize the historic but largely underappreciated work that Swalwell put in to reduce gun violence. In one of Swalwell's earliest presidential speeches in Dublin, California, which is documented in C video, Representative Eric Swalwell presidential campaign announcement, Swalwell painted a picture for the American people of what motivated him to join the fight against gun violence. Swalwell describes how when he was a prosecutor, quote unquote, I saw firsthand the ungodly and permanent damage wreaked by weapons in the hands of irresponsible people. On one case that I prosecuted, I met a woman whose son had been killed by a round from an AK-47. His name was Gary Jackson. A gunman fired 40 times at Gary, hit him just once in the back of his thigh. I can still hear his mom asking me in the witness waiting room, Isn't that where you'd want to get hit if you had to get shot? Not with an assault weapon. The autopsy doctor testified that the sheer energy from one round was enough to kill him. Gun violence defined my first days in Congress. In 2013, I and 80 others were just emerging from our freshman class orientation when the news of the Sandy Hook massacre flattened us. Just like you, I was horrified. I was horrified by the suffering and the loss. The beautiful babies who were taken and had their future stolen from them in the communities. But I also thought, I am so glad to be here. At the Capitol, to be a part of the first Congress to actually do something about these senseless slaughters. But I don't have to tell you this, Congress did nothing. Just as we did nothing after Charleston. Nothing after San Bernardino. Pulse. Vegas. Nothing. 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 Moments of silence when all our country needed were moments of action. So when Parkland happened and they joined the far too long list of American towns and cities devastated by a madman with unrestricted weaponry, I expected the same ritual to unfold. Shock, anger, accusations, and nothing happening in Washington. Thoughts and prayers used as an alibi for inaction. But the students there and their families decided not to allow that. You decided not to allow that. They instead took a stand to lead and they knew they would be attacked for it. They knew they would be exposing themselves to ridicule and hate purely political targets in a different kind of crossfire. But they did the right thing anyway. You supported them, righteously, fearlessly, with the nation behind them. They picked themselves up from unimaginable grief. They organized. You organized. They marched. You marched on their town squares, on our town squares. We made our voices heard in campaigns that removed 17 NRA endorsed incumbents from office. We did that. We did that. End quote. Swalwell was right. The movement that took hold of the United States after the Parkland shooting was able to ensure that more American lawmakers support the cause of ending gun violence. However, there is still a great deal of legislative action that has yet to be taken so long after the Parkland shooting took place. The moment of action that we need now more than ever is an implementation of a mandatory buyback program to help save the lives of so many Americans and to ensure that all Americans have the greatest chance to seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It may be a dark moment in American history, but the implementation of a mandatory buyback program can light the way forward and create a more prosperous future for all Americans. Only when the mandatory buyback program is put in place can we truly say, with definitive confidence, never again. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you will find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.